0: Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to Cerebral Faith Live. I'm Evan Minton. Uh, Usually... We've been going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I think we yeah we just wrapped up part six, looking at Jesus' teaching on divorce. But tonight, we're going to take a short little break from that and do something different, because today is a very special day, and it is a milestone in Cerebral Faith's uh, history. It is the 10th. Today marks the 10th anniversary of Cerebral Faith. Uh, The channel is two years old. The podcast is about four years old. But the ministry as a whole has been running for a a full 10 years. I am 30 years old now. And I started this as a little blogger blog when I was 20 years old. Uh, If you know my story, I started... um, you know, I was having some struggles with my faith. I didn't really know um, whether Christianity was true or not, and I I prayed about it because I figured if if Christianity was true, then God existed, and if God existed, then He wouldn't want me to stop believing. And if He didn't want me to stop believing, then He would help me to continue in my belief. Uh, uh, he would show me that it is true if it is, and if it wasn't true, then I would just you know continue to doubt myself into agnosticism or, or atheism. And then I discovered Lee Strobel's books and that led me to other you know Christian academics like William Lane Craig and Michael Icona and, and Gary Habermas. And about a year after I was you know reading all these guys and, and reading up on the arguments and evidences for, for Christianity, um, you know I started using these conversations in uh, online forums like Twitter and, and Facebook and at some point i kind of got tired of just typing out all of my all, you know the same arguments over and, over and over and over and over again so i thought you know what i'm just going to start a blog and if i if there's anything that really requires any in-depth response that i can't just deal with in a you know a few paragraphs then i'll just direct the person to this article i could say you know you can you can read more about it here where i've written you know such and such and so i went on I Googled how to start a blog, and I discovered this this platform called Blogger, also known as Blogspot, and that was the beginning of cerebralfaith.blogspot.com, and it grew from there. It started off, not I didn't have an audience. I only got maybe 11 or 12 page views a day, but then it grew to 100, and then 200, and You know, eventually 400 page views a day on average was the normal. And eventually, right before I switched over to WordPress, it was like 1,500. Uh, It just kind of grew and grew from there. And and it has become a full-blown ministry, not just a simple blog. And in order to you know commemorate you know it's a it's a live web show now it's we, i've got shorter videos on this youtube channel i've got an audio podcast where I, sometimes i monologue about stuff sometimes i interview scholars about their you know newest book or whatever you know topic whatever i have them on for and sometimes i moderate debates um and i have a whole bunch of written content and, but to commemorate cerebral faiths beginnings, Uh, what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to do uh, a live reading of some of the best Q&A articles that I have gotten uh, from readers of the blog Uh, on my website, CerebralFaith.net. I switched to WordPress in 2019. Um, I have this thing um, that's very, very much, in fact, it was inspired by William Lane Craig's question of the week. Where people can send questions that they have about arguments for God's existence, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, or or whatever. Maybe it's something I've written about, or maybe it's just some theological topic in general. Uh, and they 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 ask me the question. I copy paste their email into the into the uh, blogger text box, and then I write my response. And I've compiled what I consider to be the best articles, the the most thoughtful questions and the the best answers that I've given to them. And I'll be doing that tonight and I'll be, I'll have the articles up on screen. So if you want to read along while you listen, uh, you can do so. Of course, those listening on the audio podcast later on won't have that luxury. Um, And by the way, like you, as usual, we will have an interactive uh, uh, live chat. Um, but unlike with the presentations, I'm going to like interact with like um, comments in between articles, rather than like rather than just have this long PowerPoint presentation. And then at the end, we just have 30 minutes of Q and A. Uh, for this special, I'm going to read one article, then stop, and then I'm going to look at the live chat, see what everyone has to say. I'm going to interact with some of you guys. Then I'm going to go to another article, and I'm going to do that until we run on about. You know, until I, I get done or, t- or until I think, ah, eh, this is running a little long. The Real Steel Cat said, I made it just in time. Well, it's good to have you here, The Real Steel Cat. Um, welcome. And uh, he's a patron, by the way. And if you would like to become a patron, go to www.patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. Hi, Thiago Severo Gonzalez from Brazil. It's good to have you here. So let's get started. I'm going to share my screen, and I'm going to share with you some of the some of the best articles that I, you know, that I, some of the most thoughtful questions, and some of the best uh, responses that 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 I that I think I've given. So first article is does the univ- does the cause of the universe really have to be spaceless timeless and immaterial and here this is uh, the subject matter is the kalam cosmological argument greetings evan in your blog post titled the kalam cosmological argument you made the statement quote we can infer logically that the cause must have certain attributes given the nature of the origin of the universe. For example, since the cause brought space into existence, it cannot be spatial, since in order to be spatial, it would have to exist inside of space. But we know that space didn't exist until the Big Bang, so the cause must transcend space, i.e. be spaceless. It must be timeless for the same reason. No time until the Big Bang, so it cannot be inside of time. It cannot be inside of the thing that is bringing into existence. Oh, but wait. By the way, before I continue, I forgot to say this. But uh, we are having a book giveaway, and the winner will be announced at the end of this stream. So if you want to, if you want to enter, say that you want to enter in the live chat, and I will put your name in a random name generator. Anyway, back to the article. It must be immaterial since we know it's spaceless. Since material objects have mass and therefore occupy spatial dimensions. If there are no spatial dimensions until the Big Bang, if the cause were material, it wouldn't be able to exist, end quote. I've heard many other philosophers make similar statements, and I've always agreed and thought this was obvious. However, I'm after pondering this point harder, it now seems to me that one... Uh, That one making statements such as the one above I quoted, are making an important assumption. The universe is indeed all of space-time reality. If one avoids making such an assumption, it no longer seems impossible, at least logically speaking, that the cause of the universe could be composed of matter. It seems that a proponent of the Kalam cosmological argument must presuppose that the universe is all of space-time reality while i don't exactly think this is an unwarranted assumption it still seems like an assumption nonetheless i'd like to be clear that i'm not uh, i'd like to be clear here that i'm not arguing for any specific model like the multiverse or some quantum vacuum what i'm asking is why it would not be at least possible that the cause of our universe is materialistic if your response is that it is possible would that not undermine the purpose of the kca I would certainly appreciate any insight you can provide relating to my conclusion. Kind regards, Christian. Mr. Minton's response. That's me. Your question is a very important one regarding the conceptual analysis of the Kalam cosmological argument, Christian. In fact, the weight of the evidence is such that this is the approach of contemporary atheistic scientists and and philosophers take when trying to avoid the conclusion that our world was brought into being by a creator. If there was no absolute beginning of all physical reality, then it would be false that we have an ex nihilo miracle caused by a personal, timeless, spaceless, immaterial mind. So I think you're right in saying that the positive arguments for the cause's attributes only work on the assumption that there is an ultimate beginning of everything. Now the real question becomes then, how do we know the Big Bang really is the ultimate beginning of all reality? First of all, I don't think we need to prove that the cosmic explosion we call the Big Bang really is the ultimate origin. One could concede the models atheistic scientists propose, like a multiverse model or a quantum vacuum model or even the wild computer simulation run by aliens theory, all of which would make the Big Bang only a relative beginning. The important thing for the KCA isn't whether the Big Bang is the ultimate origin, but rather whether or not there is an ultimate origin at some point. The problem with multiverse proposals, quantum vacuum proposals, and even the alien simulation theory is that they would, at best, kick the problem upstairs. Now, I know you said you weren't pushing for any particular model, but I think it's important to show that no attempt currently on the table to subvert the absolute beginning of everything succeeds, and I shall do that in just a moment. To your question, you asked, quote, what I'm asking is why it would not at at least be possible that the cause of our universe is materialistic. If your response is that it is possible, would that not undermine the purpose of the KCA? End quote. It depends on what you mean by possible. If you mean that it's logically possible, then I might say yes. If you mean ontologically possible, then no. Moreover, I noticed you used the phrase our universe. I would say yes, it is both logically possible and ontologically possible that our universe could have a temporal, spatial, material cause. But again, what about that cause? To sweep away the validity of the conceptual analysis, one must get rid of an ultimate beginning altogether, and none of the options currently on the table can do that. They simply push God upstairs rather than eliminating him altogether. Let's consider just two examples on both ends of the spectrum. The Mother Universe. A model developed in the 1970s that is popularly called the Mother Universe Theory, or the Bubble Universes Model, says that there is a mother vacuum which spawns all sorts of baby universes in its womb. The Mother Universe is said to be static and eternal. It's just the babies that have a beginning. This model has various serious problems. You see, at any point in the quantum vacuum, there is a non-zero probability that a universe would form at that point by a quantum fluctuation. But, given infinite past time, universes will have come into being in all places in the quantum vacuum. Because given any non-zero probability and enough time, eventually that probability will be actualized. In that case, by now, all of those universes will have gotten so big that they would all fill the entire vacuum and collide with one another, join together, and form a massive universe that gives off the appearance of an infinitely old, infinitely large universe. In contradiction to the powerful scientific evidence that tells us we live in a universe of finite size and age. So as you can see, it's not enough for these bubble universes to expand in the unchanging mother universe. In order to avoid having the appearance of an infinitely old, infinitely large universe, the Mother Universe has to be increasing in size as well. But if the Mother Universe were constantly expanding, then the Bord-Guth-Vilenkin theorem would apply to it, and that means that the Mother Universe had a beginning to its existence uh, and would require a transcendent cause. Now, some of our readers may be wondering at this point what the Bord-Guth-Vilenkin theorem is. The Bord-Guth-Vilenkin theorem is a theorem published by Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin. It says that any universe which has been constantly expanding in the past cannot be infinitely old, but must have come into being at some point in the past. The borg guth theorem implies that even a mother universe producing many baby universes must have a beginning to its existence. Valenkin writes on page 176 of his book Many Worlds in One that, quote, It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape, they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning, end quote. Additionally, the mother universe problem falls under the same issues of the absurdities of infinities, which I've argued in the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, led which I argued in the Kalam cosmological argument led me to the conclusion that this universe had a beginning. Physicist John M. Kinson explains that quote P1, if atheism is true, the universe must have always existed. If so, an atheist could argue that there is no need for God to create the universe. P2, the Big Bang shows that the universe did not always exist. P3, therefore, atheism is false. P4, to avoid this conclusion, that atheism is false and God exists, many leading atheists prefer to conjecture that our universe was birthed by a mother universe. So in a sense, our universe was created by a mother universe. P5. So what created the Mother Universe? One atheist conjecture is that the Mother Universe always existed. P6. However, this means that the Mother Universe must have crossed an infinite number of moments of time to get to the instant when it gave birth to our universe. P7. However, it is impossible to cross an infinity of time moments by crossing or counting through them one by one sequentially. No matter how long you count, you can never cross infinity. P7. However, it is impossible to cross an infinity of time moments by crossing or counting through them one by one, sequentially. No matter how long you count, you can never cross infinity. P8. Therefore, the grandmother universe cannot be infinitely old. P9. Therefore, the grandmother universe was created a finite time period ago. P10, this reasoning shows that the grandmother universe did not always exist. Therefore, the superset universe, defined as including the grandmother universe, mother universe, and our universe, did not always exist. P12, therefore atheism is false, similarly to P3 above. C1, therefore atheism is false, C2, therefore there is a God who created the universe, or the mother universe, or the grandmother universe, end quote. In conclusion, the multiverse can't be the escape hatch from God that the atheist wants it to be. Even if I were to concede the point to the atheist that a mother universe actually exists, it must have a beginning, and hence a transcendent causal agent that brought it into being. The the Alien Computer Simulation Theory. Neil deGrasse Tyson mentioned this idea in passing when talking about the Big Bang in his book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. He wrote, quote, Or what if everything we know and love were just a computer simulation rendered for entertainment by a super-intelligent alien species? End quote. The problem with the idea that the universe is a simulation run by aliens is this. Even if it was conceded, it wouldn't get rid of an ultimate beginning. At best, it would account for our universe's beginning. Why do I say that? Well, these aliens had to be born, grow up, go to college, and learn computer skills in order to be able to create our universe, right? That sequence of events presupposes before and after relationships. Before and after relationships logically entails the passage of time. Therefore, the universe in which our superintelligent alien creators live uh, live in, in is a universe in which time passes if it's impossible to traverse an infinite number of moments then that means that the universe that our alien creators live in must have had a beginning as well now one could say maybe that universe is a simulation run by even superior superintelligent aliens we're living in a simulation inside of a simulation Again, these aliens had to be born, grow up, and learn computer skills before they could actualize the simulation which produced our simulation. That universe had to have a beginning. This problem throws you into an infinite regress of simulations begetting simulations. Since infinite regresses are impossible to cross, i.e. our simulation would never have come about, that implies there must have been an absolute beginning somewhere in the line of simulations again god rears his holy head conclusion these two attempts to subvert the ultimate beginning of reality aren't the only ones on the table but they are the one the current they are currently the most popular the latter because it's so wild and titillates the inner sci-fi nerds in us But even if they were conceded, they would only go so far as to show that the ultimate beginning isn't at the Big Bang, but farther back. So, to come full circle to your original question, while I think it's ontologically possible for the cause of our universe to be spatial, temporal, and material, I don't think it's ontologically possible that the cause of the ultimate beginning of everything is. And that's all that's needed for the Kalam cosmological argument to be successful. And that's the end. There's my footnotes and there's the uh, call to action to if anyone has a question to send it to Cerebral Faith. So now let me look at the live chat and see if anyone has any questions about that. No new questions so far. By the way, I'm, I'm streaming this to Facebook as well. So you can leave, I think Facebook comments will show up here in my stream yard. Now I'm going to go on to the next article. Just a sec. Uh, Share screen. And here we go. The Big Bang, Q&A, The Big Bang, The Planck Era, and The Cosmological Argument. Greetings, Evan. In a blog post of yours titled, Is the Big Bang the Origin of the Universe? You stated, quote, There's just simply no reason to think that we can't extrapolate the expansion all the way back to an absolute beginning out of nothing, end quote. Reading this got me thinking, and although and although I did agree with you, I decided it would be beneficial to study the Big Bang Theory and other competing theories more thoroughly myself. In doing so, I've read some interesting details concerning the contemporary Big Bang Theory, and I thought you could perhaps offer some insight into them. From my understanding, Einstein's theory of general relativity, GR, is used in the Big Bang theory to demonstrate that if we rewind the universe, so to speak, we would come to a point where the universe was compressed into an infinitely dense point, a singularity. This singularity would be ontologically equivalent to nothing-slash-non-being, since nothing physical can actually be physically dense. Yet the problem is that GR seems to break down as one approaches the Planck era at 10-43 seconds after the Big Bang. Because of this, we can't be sure what exactly happened before the Planck era, and one would need a theory of quantum gravity to describe it physically. Thus, since GR breaks down at the Planck era, how exactly could one be confident that a singularity actually occurred? It seems that the existence of a cosmological singularity is more of an educated guess than anything. In other words, from the literature I've read, it while it's possible that the universe began as a singularity, it's also possible that there was no singularity at all. Given this, how exactly do you think this would affect the cosmological arguments for the existence of God based on the claim that the universe had a beginning? Is a singularity necessarily required to show that the universe had an absolute origin? So far, I've read about several cosmological models based on hypothetical quantum gravity theories, and some do indeed try to avoid a beginning. I know that William Lane Craig in particular has written extensively on naturalistic theories for the origin of the universe, and I do plan to read more of his published work in regards to my question. Nevertheless, I would like to hear your perspective on my question, or perhaps you could point me to some useful resources. Regards, Christian. Mr. Minton's response. Thanks for your thoughtful question, Christian, and I'm glad you're digging into the resources I provided on the Kalam Cosmological Argument and are are interacting with them. Your question is, since scientists have no idea what the conditions of the physical universe was like during that billionth billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second after it began, doesn't this make the existence of a cosmological singularity guesswork? Whether it makes uh, a beginning of the universe at the moment of a cosmic singularity questionable or not, I'm not sure. That said, I don't think it calls into question the second premise of the KCA that the universe began to exist. All we need is for the universe to be expanding, and we can conclude that the universe popped into being a finite time ago, uh, whatever the universe was like prior to that 10 minus 45 seconds of its existence. I say this on the basis of the Bord-Guth-Vilenkin theorem. Dr. William Lane Craig explains that, quote, something of a watershed appears to have been reached in the year 2003 when three very famous cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin, were able to prove a theorem which shows that any universe at all which is in a state of cosmic expansion on average throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have had a past space-time boundary or beginning to, of its existence. What makes the Bord-Guth-Vilenkin theorem so remarkable is that it is independent of any description of the universe prior to the Planck time. That is to say, it doesn't depend on having a quantum theory of gravity for its validity. Because we do not yet have a physical description of this early era of the universe, it has been fertile ground for speculations. In fact, one scientist has compared this to, reg- to the region on ancient maps, which are labeled, here there be dragons. You can fill in all sorts of imagined fantasies. But the Bord-Guth-Vilenkin The, the guth vilenkin theorem implies... Whatever physical description we come up with for that early era of the universe, the universe must have a beginning at some point, at some time in the past, end quote. Emphasis mine. Valinkin is very blunt about the implications. Here is what he writes on page 176 of his book Many Worlds in One. Quote, it is said that an argument is what it convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning, end quote. To put this in the form of a quasi-mathematical equation, expanding universe plus bord guth theorem equals a universe with a beginning. I hope this helped to answer your question. God bless. And then there are the footnotes. Reminder if you want to enter the book giveaway, uh, just put it in the comment section below. The books that I'm giving away are the ones that I have written The Case for the One True God, Yahweh's Inferno, and My Redeemer Lives. I have copies right here. You You can see them. The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. And here is Yahweh's Inferno why scripture's teaching on hell doesn't impugn the goodness of God. And here is My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. And all three of these can be yours if you put your name in the comment section and if the random name generator picks out your name. Do we have any questions in the live chat? We do not. Okay, then I will resume. The next article is Q&A, yet another email on the free-thinking argument, with a brief note on Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism. As I have mentioned before, I am now a believer in libertarian free will. However, I still disagree with the free-thinking argument. I wanted to discuss it with Tim Stratton directly. However, he is busy at this point, so we agreed that it would be best for me to discuss it with you again. We have debated the issue several times before, and if I recall, you and Tim Stratton discussed some of my arguments on an episode uh, that was playing on that that played on both of your podcasts. I watched it on his to uh, to see and a new and strongest form of his argument. I watched it a long time ago, which means my memory is somewhat is probably somewhat off. So I will try to stick to the basic points which are relevant. I believe it is fair for me to quote both of your articles. Uh, and Tim Stratton's to respond to. I do remember my infinite series argument, which I got from Jonathan Edwards. See here, but was misrepresented. And you can see the proper form of it in Q&A follow-up on objections to libertarian free will. That should uh, that should clear that up. Now I think Daniel Den- uh, Daniel Dennison Whedon demonstrated in his rebuttal to Edwards and other determinists. You can read it free here, the freedom of the will as a basis of human responsibility and divine government, that his argument is flawed and simply based on an understanding of what the relevant terms meant, and that the type of causation required for free will isn't incoherent, although it is perhaps uh, impossible to fully conceive. The book also has an incredibly strong response to compatibilism and semi-compatibilism, which is the best one I have ever seen. Overall, I started reading the book as a determinist, thoroughly convinced that free will was impossible and that we didn't need it to be responsible for our actions. A few weeks of reading and reflecting on it, and I was a thorough believer in libertarian free will and realized how absurd it is to believe that determinism and moral responsibility are compatible. Overall, I highly recommend it. The Society of Evangelical Armenians also endorsed this book basically as a complete and utter refutation of Edwards, which is why I wanted to read it. See here. Also, the claim that God has libertarian free will and therefore humans can is a non sequitur. If you are arguing that God by definition has free will because he is an agent whose decisions are uncaused, then that proof would not apply to humans who are not first causes in that sense. And I am guessing that you guys don't actually think that our decisions are uncaused in any sense. Uh, That would conflict with the cosmological argument. And that you instead think we, as willing agents, are causes adequate to produce several effects, decisions. This is what Whedon calls alternative causation. I got that uh, impression from the podcast, given your discussion about being able to choose various things that are compatible with your nature. If that is an alternative uh, causation by another name. I don't know what is. Otherwise, the principle that everything that has a beginning has a cause is dead, and the cosmological argument goes out the window. And the fact that people made that decision—that decision rather than another one—would truly be random and not up to you in any sense. As far from be, uh, being free as possible. And even if God is the first cause, that doesn't mean that he has the ability to choose otherwise. Even in that first decision to create the universe. There could easily be a God who, when he was the, uh, the first cause, had a certain nature that necessitated him to make only one choice, create the universe. Of course, I think humans do have free will, but the cosmological argument scarcely proves that God could have chosen to cre- to not create the universe or a different kind of universe. The cosmological argument is not a proof of any kind of libertarian free will that that humans have, even if you define God uh, having us decisions uncaused as free will. Of course, if God was an alternative cause of the universe, then every believer in libertarian free will would agree that he is a free agent. But the cosmological argument proves no such thing. I don't personally think that an uncaused, otherwise deterministic God like Edwards would have believed, uh, like Edwards would have believed in, would count as a free agent. His inclinations/slash desires may be uncaused, but the effect, uh, whatever choices he makes, is, is absolutely fixed by these inclinations combined with his knowledge. Wouldn't he be? Uh, he wouldn't be responsible for the fact that he has chose that he has those inclinations and he can't alter them or in any way prevent them from having these effects. So how would he be responsible for them or their effects? And how would he be a free agent? With that out of the way, I want to deal with the issue. I dispute premises two and three in the free thinking argument. Two, if the soul does not exist, libertarian free will does not exist. Three, if libertarian free will does not exist, rationality and knowledge do not exist. Two is easier to dispute than three. I have never heard a proper defense of it. I have heard non-naturalists and naturalists going all the way back to one of the first naturalists, Baron D. Holbach, assert that if naturalism is true, we don't have free will, but I have never heard proof. I have heard a variety of ways of restating the claim, but never a shred of proof. Here is an example from Tim Stratton's argument, the free-thinking argument in a nutshell. Premise 2 is tantamount to, if all that exists is nature, then all that exists is causally determined via the laws of nature and the initial conditions of the Big Bang, end quote. First of all, the laws of nature, according to what naturalists typically believe, do not determine anything except... Perhaps that is a quibble, but the laws of nature are simply descriptions of the way nature is observed to behave. And last time I checked, there was no law of nature saying that all physical causes, even at the macro level, are deterministic or are only capable of producing a certain set of effects in a given environment. The claim about the initial conditions of the Big Bang determining everything is simply that, a claim. This isn't an axiomatic first principle that can just be assumed. So it will require some kind of justification. We have observed that at least most physical objects at the macro level are deterministic. But does that mean all of them are? If you are arguing that since since the particles that make up human beings are deterministic, we are therefore deterministic. That is the fallacy of composition. I am not saying you are arguing that; just addressing a potential argument. If you are arguing that we observe deterministic behaviors in at least most physical objects, we observe that doesn't mean that if we observe a physical object that seems not to comply with this law, that we shouldn't accept this observation. And if free will must exist, or if we just have a good reason, uh, like observations of our minds thinks it does, then we have reason to think that our minds are free. If our minds are our brains, then we have good reason to believe that our brains are not deterministic. Perhaps you wish to argue that that is a reason to believe in dualism over physicalism. However, our minds slash souls do seem to be mostly deterministic as well. Most of the functions of the mind, intellect, desire, itse- itself, etc. are in themselves experienced as deterministic unless regulated by the will, which we experience as indeterministic. So most of the time our souls are deterministic, and therefore we have reason to assume our souls have an inherently deterministic quality to them, at least in most parts. Thus the dualistic soul uh, has observed to be mostly deterministic therefore i conclude that it doesn't have free will that can scarcely that is scarcely much of an argument therefore you can see why i'm not impressed by the claim that at least most of the matter is observed to be deterministic therefore all of it is if physicalism we have reason to believe that despite most matter being deterministic a type of it the will in our brains is not so if dualism is true we have a reason to believe that Despite uh, most of our souls being deterministic, a part of it our wills is not. Uh, Bear with me, this one is a long one. Um, (laughs) The question is long. Uh, Those are the reasons I have imagined as a justification for premise two. Perhaps you have a better justification than the ones I haven't thought of or wish to defend any of the other possible ones I have argued against. I have wanted to see a justification of this premise for a long time. When D. Holbach or Alex Rosenberg claim that naturalism entails determinism, I see them as equally unjustified in saying that, and would like to hear the reasons why I must stop believing in free will if naturalism is true. Just to be clear, I am not saying that quantum physics grants free will or has anything to do with it. Premise three is going to be a complicated topic. In defense of the claim that the lack of libertarian free will eliminates all possibility of knowledge, Tim Stratton writes in the article mentioned above, quote, Premise three is equivalent with, if all things are causally determined, that includes all thoughts and beliefs, end quote. If our thoughts and beliefs are forced upon us and we could not have chosen better beliefs, then we are simply left assuming that our determined beliefs are good, let alone true. Therefore, we can never rationally affirm that our beliefs are the inference to the best explanation. We can only assume it. Here is the big problem for the atheistic naturalist. It logically follows that if naturalism is true, then atheists, or anyone else for that matter, cannot possess knowledge. Knowledge is typically and minimally defined as justified true belief. One can happen to have true beliefs. However, if they do not possess warrant or justification for a specific belief, Their belief does not qualify as a knowledge claim. If one cannot freely infer the best explanation, then one has no justification that their belief really is the best explanation. Without justification, knowledge goes down the drain. All we are left with is question-begging assumptions, a logical fallacy." I am going to first take an unexpected route and argue that the argument that our belief in our reliable use of logic and other basic criteria doesn't need to be justified. The claim that all of our beliefs must be justified in the sense Stratton means it is a self-refuting claim, because it itself is an ultimately unjustified claim. One of the biggest problems in epistemology is Munchausen's Trilemma, where all beliefs are either one, justified by circular reasoning, two, justified by an infinite regress of justification, or three, justified by assumption, or as I prefer to say, it is not justified in the sense of having any warrant from outside at all. The claim that, our, that all beliefs must be justified destroys itself when put through this trilemma. Which option will you take for the claim that all beliefs must be justified to be knowledge? Thus I affirm option three, since the... Since once the claim that all beliefs are unjustified goes down the drain, accepting three is not problematic, and I would argue that there is no justification at all for the claims that the laws of logic, for example, must be justified. In most cases, one could argue that given all of the competing beliefs in the world, we need a method to determine which one is uh, correct, which requires justification. However, in order to even understand the concept of justification, you need certain assumptions such as the law of logic, our reliable access to them, our existence, us being able to tell when our beliefs are reliable or not, etc. To argue against logic on this, based on this is to assume logic in the first place, which is the stolen concept fallacy in the first place. Justification is not needed here. A similar point can be made against Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism. The probability of us having widely unreliable belief-forming faculties is zero, since the idea is self-refuting. Generally reliable faculties aren't merely a properly basic belief. The concept of properly basic beliefs can be put into the trilemma and can be shown to be ultimately unjustified. They are an undeniable axiomatic belief, so it must be the case that we have been put into an environment where organisms without reliable belief-forming faculties are filtered out by the environment or outcompeted competed by organisms that do have them. If anything, the argument should be made that we have reliable belief-forming faculties is more likely to have occurred on theism than on naturalism. But the argument that naturalism is self-refuting cannot, however, be maintained unless the unreliable belief-forming faculties can be de- demonstrated as impossible or incoherent on naturalism. It is true that beliefs about science and philosophy do not directly affect our survival and reproduction however why can't the same process that led to us figuring out about how to build something or figure out how to get water in a bad place be used to figure out scientific problems like the origin of the universe after all the scientific method requires little more than observation making hypotheses and trial and error this can help us fly to the moon figure out that evolution is true, figure out that the laws of, of the universe and perhaps eventually how the universe came to be, or that one might be beyond our comprehension, who knows. For philosophy, we needed to be able to use data to make more inferences in our evolutionary paths. so it's not surprising that we have the information in our minds to make deeper inferences about it. Of course, we do make errors about that, but that is a problem for everyone, not just atheistic evolution and can't therefore be used to prove another hypothesis against it. We also generally need to understand basic concepts like the laws of logic and the laws of causality innately. And if they were in, off in one part of the universe, that would that would cause havoc everywhere, thus making it unre- uh, reasonable to believe that they apply everywhere. Goodness, I knew it was long, but I didn't rem- <laughs> think it would be this long reading it back perhaps a better definition of knowledge would be reasonably accepted true belief this definition is at least not uh, self-refuting and is no problem the basic criteria for epistemology uh, would be like the laws of logic are reasonably accepted assertions slash axioms that are required to even understand the concept of justification thus it makes sense for them not to be bound by the concept Nevertheless, I do not see the above point as completely ending the free-thinking argument. If it could be shown that it was conceptually incoherent for us to exercise our rational faculties or for us to be aware that we are doing so on determinism, then I would accept the argument. Or if it could be shown that it is impossible for us to use rationality to infer the best explanation if we have been determined to, uh, to will to do so, which would make free will a basic axiom as well. Some forms of determinism certainly are like that. And if if a determinist claims that our minds don't consciously and intentionally select one option over another, and that all experience of doing so is an illusion generated by unconscious processes, then we have a problem. It is thus impossible for a person to use rationality to do that, and thus impossible for them to reliably distinguish between true and false beliefs. They have a positive reason to deny their own rationality given their theory, Thus, they have no reason to believe anything, including the truth of that theory. I think I'm just going to, like, s- skip to the end of this. Since, any, since most of the parts I interact with, I'm probably going to quote anyway. And this is really long. So that is Sam's question. Mr. Minton's response, goodness gracious, this might be the longest email I have ever received from anyone. Well, let's get started. The Kalam Cosmological Argument and Free Will. You wrote, quote, of course, I think humans do have free will, but the Kalam Cosmological Argument scarcely proves that God could have chosen not to create the universe or a different kind of universe. The cosmological argument is not a proof of any kind of libertarian free will that humans have, even if you define God as us decisions uncaused as free will. End quote. Right, the cosmological argument doesn't prove that human beings have libertarian free will. You're certainly right about that. I think you might be referring to the podcast episode in which Tim and I talked about libertarian free will. In that episode, Tim Stratton argued that the cosmological argument entails that libertarian free will is a coherent concept, and that therefore, God could create creatures with libertarian free will, even if he never does. Even if God decided to actualize a world in which human beings do not have libertarian free will, he nevertheless could have actualized a world in which human beings do possess it. This was an argument that libertarian free will is a coherent concept and not an incoherent concept. Some Calvinists try to argue that libertarian free will isn't even possible, much less actual. So getting people to admit that God creating free creatures isn't the same as God creating a square circle or a married bachelor is a step in the right direction. In episode 30, The Apologetic Significance of Molinism, we were talking about the contents of a paper he presented at the past EPS conference. In his paper, he explained how the Kalam deductively proves that the universe has a cause, and then went into the inductive inference to God as the cause, or as William Lane Craig would call it, the conceptual analysis part of the argument. One of these is that the cause of the universe must have the freedom to create the universe or not create the universe, because if the cause had all of the necessary and sufficient conditions required to create the universe in place, then the Big Bang would have occurred infinitely long ago, contrary to the scientific evidence. Dr. William Lane Craig explains it this way, quote, we have concluded that the beginning of the universe was the effect of a first cause. By the nature of the case, that cause cannot have any beginning of its existence, nor any prior cause, nor can there have been any changes in this cause, either in its nature or operations prior to the beginning of the universe. It just exists changelessly without beginning, and a finite time ago it brought the universe into existence. Now, this is exceedingly odd. The cause is, in some sense, eternal, and yet the effect which it produced is not eternal, but began to exist a finite time ago. How can this be? If the necessary and sufficient conditions for the production of the effects are eternal, then why is not the effect eternal? How can all of the causal conditions sufficient for the production of the effect be changelessly existent and yet the effect not also be existent along with the cause how can the cause exist without the effect one might say that the cause came to exist or changed in some way just prior to the first event but then the cause's beginning or changing would be the first event and we must ask all over again for its cause and this cannot go on forever, for we know that a beginningless series of events cannot exist. There must be an absolutely first event before which there was no change, no previous event. We know that this first cause must have been cause. We know that this first event must have been caused. The question is: how can a first event come to exist if the cause of that event exists changelessly and eternally? Why isn't the effect co-eternal with its cause? The best way out of this dilemma is agent causation, whereby the agent freely brings about some event in the absence of prior determining conditions. Because the agent is free, he can initiate new effects by freely bringing about conditions which were not previously present. For example, a man sitting changelessly from eternity could freely will to stand up. Thus, a temporal effect arises from an eternally existing agent. Similarly, a finite time ago, a creator endowed with free will could have freely brought the universe into being at that moment. In this way, the creator could exist changelessly and eternally, but choose to create the world in time. By choose, one need not mean that the creator changes his mind about the decision to create, but that he freely and eternally intends to create a world with a beginning. Uh, By exercising his causal power, he therefore brings it about that a world with a beginning comes to exist. So the cause is eternal, but the effect is not. In this way, then, it is possible for the temporal universe to have come to exist from an eternal cause through the free will of a personal creator, end quote. Back to Stratton's paper. Stratton wrote, quote, Some deterministic Calvinists have argued that the idea of libertarian freedom is absurd and that even God cannot possess this kind of volition. If that is the case, then these Calvinists cannot appeal to all of the rational inferences provided by the Kalam and, human- and humanity. And humanity, in a sense, becomes just as necessary as God himself. If God does possess libertarian freedom, then it stands to reason that humans could possess the limited but genuine uh, ability to choose between a range of options, each consistent with our nature as well. This is the epitome of libertarian freedom. The Kalam also helps us understand even more about Molinism. Consider the fact that the rational inferences provided by the Kalam showed that God exists in a static state of aseity in which the universe, time and space, did not exist. That is to say, logically prior to to the beginning of the existence of the universe, God exists. And then, to use temporal language, God creates the universe. Consider this static state of aseity. The question is raised. Is God maximally great in this state? End quote. Tim Stratton went on in the paper to invite his readers to take the cosmological quiz. Question one. Is it true that God exists in a state of aseity logically prior to creating the universe and thus without the universe? Question two. In this state of aseity, is God omnipotent? If so, does he possess the powers to create human uh, creatures with libertarian freedom, even if he never does create them? Question three. In this state of aseity, is God omniscient? If so, does he possess the knowledge of what these libertarian free creatures within his power to create, even if he never does create them, would freely do? And Tim Stratton said that if one answers no to any of these questions, you might be a heretic. On the other hand, if people answer yes to all of the above, then that means that they are Molinists. Stratton explained, quote, This is because if one affirms that God is both omnipotent and omniscient in the state of affairs logically prior to the creation of the universe, then some flavor of Molinism must be true. God would possess the power to create libertarian free creatures, even if he never does create them, and God would middle-know exactly how these free creatures would freely think, act, believe, and behave logically prior to his creative decree, quote. Stratton's point was threefold. One, the Kalam entails that libertarian free will is possible and two, for the Calvinist who is adamant that it is not possible they cannot use the Kalam in their apologetics, and three, for the Christian who is theologically committed to God being omnipotent, omniscient, and self-existent, then it follows that God has middle knowledge of what all libertarian free creatures he could create would freely choose if he chose to create them. Even if God never Even if God never does decide to create a free creature, because he is all-powerful, he could create creatures with libertarian free will. And because he is omniscient, he knows everything they would do in circumstances he could place them in. So while the Kalam neither proves that humans have libertarian free will, nor that full-blown Molinism is true, It does entail certain facets of Molinism that many Calvinists won't concede, i.e. that libertarian free will is possible and that God has middle knowledge. Sorry for spending a lot of time on this, but I do think it's important that we realize just what implications the Kalam cosmological argument has on the Molinism debate. I impact this not just for your benefit, Sam, but also for any Calvinist who may read this blog post. Before I move on, let me just say that Tim and I would agree that our choices aren't uncaused. We would just say that they are, we would say that they are undetermined, but not my actions are caused by my own volition. And the same goes for God. You could say that our our choices are self caused. Issues with premise two of the free thinking argument. I'm surprised that you are in doubt over premise two, and that seems to be one of the more obviously true of the premises in the argument. Most of the naturalists I have used this argument on go after three, as you do and as you have in past conversations we've had. But one is true by definition, four can't be denied without forfeiting the right to debate, and two seems at least intuitively true at minimum. For readers not familiar with the argument, let me spell out the premises. 1. If naturalism is true, the immaterial human soul does not exist. 2. If the soul does not exist, libertarian free will does not exist. 3. If libertarian free will does not exist, rationality and knowledge do not exist. 4. Rationality and knowledge exist. 5. Therefore, libertarian free will exists. 6. Therefore, the soul exists. 7. Therefore, naturalism is false. 8. The best explanation for the existence of the soul and or libertarian free will is God. The vast majority of naturalists affirm, too. You've got to think there's a reason for that. You wrote, quote, The laws of nature, according to what naturalists typically believe, do not determine anything. Perhaps that is a quibble, but the laws of nature are simply descriptions of the way nature is observed to behave, end quote. This is just an issue of semantics. The laws of nature is a term often used colloquially for laws of physics and chemistry, such as the four fundamental forces. These certainly are more than descriptive. When an apple falls from a tree, gravity isn't just describing the apple falling from the tree. Gravity causes the apple to fall. The mass of the Earth exerts a gravitational pull on the mass of the apple. Two massive bodies attract one another, and more mass and more massive each respective body is to the other, and the closer those two bodies are, the more powerful the gravitational attraction. Gravity and motion don't just describe the Earth rotating around the Sun. Gravity and motion cause it. Likewise, when you combine certain chemicals together, you get a reaction. The law of chemistry doesn't just describe the reaction, it causes it. So this is just a confusion of language. In the free-thinking argument in a nutshell, and other places where Stratton defends the, the argument, I'm not surprised he uses colloquial language. These articles and podcast episodes are aimed at a lay audience who talk like that. In more academic material, for example, the doctoral dissertation he's working on. This is an old article, by the way. His doctoral dissertation is already out. You can read it. It's been adapted adapted into uh, a book that you can publish on Amazon.com. It's called um, Human Freedom, Divine Knowledge, and Mere Molinism, A Biblical, Theological, and Philosophical Analysis. I have it in paperback here, and I really recommend it. Anyway, back to reading the article. I'm sure he's way more careful in in academic material. I'm sure he's way more careful in, in being terminologically precise. If you don't like laws of nature, you can just say forces of nature. And I would agree with Tim Stratton and the majority of naturalist philosophers and scientists that if physical things are all that exist... Libertarian free will cannot exist. By the way, once I'm done reading this article, if you have anything to say, if you have any questions or if you have any pushback or whatever, I I will interact with you in the comment section before I get to the next article. And again, we are having a book giveaway. If you are just tuning into this live stream and you didn't hear me say that before, uh, you can get all – someone is going to get all of the books that I have written so far. Now there's two on here, there's two you won't get because that these two right here are basically just second editions of them and Amazon would not stop printing the first edition for some reason. I told them to stop and they wouldn't stop. So it looks like I have five books on the market but I don't, I really just have three. And someone will get those three at the end of this stream. Back to the article. If you don't like laws of nature, you can just say forces of nature, and I would agree with Tim Stratton and the majority of naturalist philosophers and scientists that if physical things are all that exist, libertarian free will cannot exist. If you are just your brain, then everything you think, act, and say is a result of bubbling chemicals, firing neurons, and genetics. You are essentially an organic robot. Your brain is just a bathtub of various different chemicals. Just as a bottle of Coke cannot help but explode when Mentos is dropped in it, so you cannot choose other than what the electrochemical processes in your brain made you choose. Tom Clark, in an article on naturalism.org, said, quote, Determinism says that given in a physical st- state of affairs, for instance, the state of your brain, body, and environment at this instant, time T, There's a single possible next state of affairs at T plus one as necessitated by causal laws discovered to hold at various levels of description, atomic, chemical, and biological, excluding any randomly generated influences, for for instance, from cosmic rays, beta decay, link as external, etc., the state at t plus 1 then necessitates the next and so on such that there's a law-like set of, conditions, uh, of transitions over time that would be exactly the same if we would reset all conditions back to their original state at t. Of course, we can't actually perform this experiment, but the deterministic claim rests on the rather robust intuition that similar causes produce similar effects. It's uncontroversially true that at least at the macro level of chemicals, compounds, and the larger phenomena they constitute, nature exhibits very reliable law-like regularities as documented by science over the last 350 years. What we seem not to observe, given our ever-increasing ability to control for causal factors in experimental situations, are inexplicable departures from these regularities. The success of science in explaining, predicting, and controlling the world hinges on the manifest dependability of the cause-and-effect relationships. If, it, if anything is true about nature, it's that it exhibits a predictable order in transitions between states. It's unlikely that we are exceptions to that order, given that we are all natural, all physical, all the time. This isn't to say determinism has been proven or could be proved, either in general or with respect to ourselves. As David Hume pointed out, our confidence in the reliability of causal laws is based on the inductive inference that since the world has exhibited regular patterning thus far, it will continue to do so. But there's no basis for this inference outside of our confidence, which is itself based on past past regularities. There's no reason in principle that nature couldn't, at any moment, run off its causal rails it has thus been on far. Thus far. Further, it looks as if behavior at the subatomic level is not deterministic but rather probabilistic in that there's no way to tell what the exact next state of a particle will be. There are only a range of possibilities, each with an associated probability as assigned by the particle's wave function. End quote. The point the author makes is that while naturalism cannot be absolutely proven to entail determinism with respect to human choices, Given what we know of nature, it is very probable that if, that we are just as determined as all non-personal agents observed in nature. I think that unless one conceives that there is a part of humanity that transcends the physical aspects of our body, the odds that we possess libertarian free will is very low you wrote, quote, if you are arguing that we observe deterministic behavior and at least most physical objects we observe, and that doesn't mean if we observe a physical object that seems not to comply with this law, that we shouldn't accept this observation, and if free will must exist, or if we have good reason, like observations of our minds, to think it does, then we have reason to think that our minds are free. If our minds are our brains, though we have good reason to think our brains are not deterministic, perhaps you wish to argue that it is a reason to believe in dualism over physicalism, end quote. Correct me if I'm misunderstanding you here, but are you saying that if we come to conclude that free will must exist, then that isn't a reason to conclude that naturalism is false, but that is instead a reason to believe that wholly physical systems aren't deterministic after all? I've read your paragraph several times, and that seems to be what you're saying. If that is what you're saying, then you're begging the question in favor of naturalism slash physicalism. This response would be tantamount to saying, If you are arguing that we observe things beginning to its existence with causes, that doesn't mean that if we observe the origin of an object that seems not to comply with this law, that we shouldn't accept this observation. And if everything that begins to exist must have a cause, or if we just have good reason, like observation, to think it does, then we have reason to think that the, ult- that the universe began to exist via a cause. If God does not exist, then we have good reason to believe that the universe began to exist, but that God was not the cause. Perhaps you wish to argue that that is a reason to believe in theism over atheism. In both cases, the logic would be circular, whether applied to the free-thinking argument against naturalism or the Kalam cosmological argument. It begs the question in favor of naturalism to say, we have free will. Well, I guess physicalism doesn't entail determinism after all. It would be like saying, the universe sprang into being out of nothing? Well, I guess God isn't required for, ex nihilo, for creatio ex nihilo after all. Issue with premise three. I think Munchausen is guilty of a false trichotomy. Well, for one thing, if one reasons in a circle, one is certainly not justified. Any circular argument for a conclusion is logically fallacious. That's why all books and articles on logical fallacies include circular reasoning on the list. Justified by circular reasoning just isn't a thing. There is no such thing as something justified by a logical fallacy. I would classify justification on the basis of one star, well-reasoned arguments and evidence, and two star, proper basicality. One star is equivalent to Munchausen's two, although I would dispute that you need to keep justifying your justifications. Requiring such would abolish the possibility of ever establishing any conclusion, and the scientific community, not to mention court justice systems, would utterly collapse. Two-star would be equivalent to Munchausen's three. Assumptions are often seen as a bad thing, but that just isn't the case. Many assumptions are justified. The assumption that my reasoning faculties are working properly, and therefore I come to true conclusions, the assumption that the law of gravity isn't going to stop working, uh, resulting in the solar system coming apart and all life on Earth perishing. The assumption that when I click save as draft in WordPress, that my blog post won't disappear Inex- uh, inexplicably when I come back to do some more editing. Uh, there are These are good assumptions. If we didn't make at least some assumptions, we would be utterly paralyzed in decision making. Philosophers would classify some of the assumptions above as properly basic beliefs. Beliefs that the laws of logic hold, that the external world is real, and that our physical senses aren't lying to us, and so on and so forth, are assumptions, for sure. They are assumptions, but they are justified because they're properly basic. Properly basic beliefs, and beliefs that are justified apart from any argument for their truth. Just a properly believe. Properly basic beliefs are beliefs that are justified apart from any argument for their truth. Not all assumptions are properly basic beliefs. If they're not properly basic, they're not justified. For example, I shouldn't assume that the Concordist framework of hermeneutics is correct and then interpret Genesis 1 as a scientific account of material origins. If I want to argue that the Bible contains scientific truths not known to the ancients, I've got to justify that framework. Accommodationism is argued for, but concordism is often taken for granted by authors like Hugh Ross and Ken Ham as a given, and hence all of their arguments are based on an unjustified assumption. I would argue that there, that there the claim that the laws of logic, our reliable access to them, our existence, us being able to tell uh, when our beliefs are reliable or not, are indeed justified assumptions. They're properly basic beliefs. Moreover, even if the basic things you mentioned, like trust in the laws of logic, the reliability of our reasoning, our existence, etc., aren't properly basic but just unjustified assumptions, surely you wouldn't argue that this entails that justification isn't needed in any area of knowledge, would you? Surely not, for you are asking for justification to believe premises 2 and 3 of the argument. If justification isn't needed for knowledge, Why not just make the assumption that both premises are true? You seem to think that in order to believe premises 2 and 3, you need well-reasoned arguments. You seem to think you need justification. At most, wouldn't you say that the majority of our conclusions must be justified? Surely I can't be justified in assuming evolutionary creationism, Molinism, annihilationism, the existence of God, that Jesus' resurrection is a fact of history, and so on and so forth. I have to have good arguments and evidence that these are true, right? If I don't have good reasons and evidence to affirm the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus or that annihilationism is the correct interpretation of Scripture's teaching on the fate of the damned, then then wouldn't you agree that I wouldn't be justified in believing those things? And if I'm not justified, how could I say, I know Jesus rose from the dead, or I know God will annihilate the wicked in hell? How could I know something just by making an assumption? Of course, the if the laws of logic and our reasoning faculties being reliable aren't justified assumptions, then since I come to my conclusions based on those assumptions, would, wouldn't that, would that not entail that all of my beliefs are unjustified? Wouldn't that entail that all of your beliefs are unjustified? If justification doesn't matter and unjustified assumptions are acceptable, why not believe everything on the basis of unjustified assumptions? Why go through the reasoning process at all? Why not just assume the conclusion is true? To heck with examining the argument's premises. This doesn't sound like a plausible epistemology to me. The Evolutionary Argument Against Naturalism. You wrote, quote, It is true that beliefs about science and philosophy do not directly affect our survival and reproduction. However, why can't the same process that led to us figuring out problems about how to build something or figure out how to get water in a bad place be used to figure out scientific problems like the origin of the universe? End quote. The argument isn't that evolutionary processes are, are incapable of producing creatures with reliable reasoning faculties, just that it is improbable that they would. Just as it isn't physically impossible to write Shakespeare's Hamlet by throwing a large box of Scrabble letters into the air, it is unlikely. It is unlikely that the forces of physics would cause the Scrabble, the, the Scrabble letters to fall in such a way as to spell out the script of Hamlet. It's a question of probability and plausibility, not a question of feasibility. Could evolutionary processes give us reasoning faculties that could discern truth, not necessary for survival? Sure, but which is more likely? That a process unassisted by reason would produce creatures capable of reason, or that a mind who possessed reason in himself oversaw the process, and ensured that we evolved to reason properly. As Dr. John Lennox says, quote, Either human intelligence ultimately owes its origin to mindless matter, or there is a creator. It is strange that some people claim that it is their intelligence that leads them to prefer the first to the second, end quote. Quote, after all, the scientific method requires little more than observations, making hypotheses, and trial and error, End quote. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but oversimplification aside, the scientific method works because the minds of scientists are and have been functioning properly over the, over the past 400 years. The disputation here is not whether science works or whether the minds of scientists work, it's why do they work. Do these working minds come from a blind, purposeless process, or did they come from a creator who innately possesses reason? A Motivation to Find Truth You wrote, quote, However, the views of someone like Jonathan Edwards do not seem to entail anything like that. Edwards believes that the will is always determined by the strongest motive— Tim Stratton, if I recall, made a criticism of this view by claiming that this entails that our beliefs are just entailed by our strongest desire, not a commitment to truth. Well, first of all, many of our motives require us to search for truth. If my motive is to see if the free-thinking argument is another excellent argument I can use against determinists, then that is a motive for me to will my reason, to think of the best reasons against it, to email to you so I can be confident of them. If I want to win a debate, I have a motive to understand the arguments on both sides. If I want to acquire food, I have a motive to use my reason to figure out how to do so. Second, curiosity can be a motive as well, which obviously would be a motive that requires the use of reason. And the result of logic and observation can in certain ways influence my my motives as well. So Stratton's arguments against Edwards here doesn't hold up. Edwards can just as easily hold, that someone willed to exercise their rationality in the same way a person would if they had free will, end quote. Sure, if you are causally determined to see the free-thinking argument as another excellent argument, if you're determined to look at both sides of the argument, and if you're determined to have true beliefs, then you might just end up at true beliefs or seeing the free-thinking argument as a good argument. However, that would just be because that's how you were determined to think and behave. If someone is causally determined to not care about truth, if someone is determined to refute the free-thinking argument against naturalism because they want naturalism to be true or even divine determinism to be true, that's how they were causally determined. The person who ends up believing truth ends up there just by happenstance he w- ju- he just was lucky that the forces of physics and chemistry determined him to avoid logical fallacies read both sides of the argument and so on the one who commits logical blunders or com- commits confirmation bias was determined to do so ultimately ultimately where you end up on determinism is just the way the cookie crumbles if i correctly apply reason It's because the molecules in my brain led me to do so, naturalistic determinism, or because God decreed that I would, Calvinistic determinism. It isn't up to me whether I'm going to be reasonable or not. The only way I could is if I possess libertarian free will. In other words, if you have the right motives to lead you to sound conclusions, good for you. You should be thankful the chemicals and molecules in your brain just happen to arrange themselves in a rational manner. The problem, though, is that this doesn't look any more like genuine reasoning uh, than a fizzing can of Coke. This looks more like people just mechanically going through certain motions and ending up certain ways. If a blind man feels around and wanders aimlessly, he might just end up at his desired destination, but he could just as well end up three miles from where he wanted to be. We wouldn't call this traveling. Why would why call being causally determined to end up at true conclusions reasoning conclusion hopefully you're now convinced that the free thinking argument against naturalism is sound now that was a long one and i, I did not uh, i did not think that that would take as long to read as i did i probably would have left that one out that was a, that was a long one that took up a good chunk of the stream So we've had some more people join the stream since then. Paula Matthias says hi, Evan. Hi, Paulo. Nice to nice to see you, or uh, I guess hear from you. Uh, see your profile pic. Hey, Travis Lee. Travis Lee says stoked for this. So I was t- stoked for it too. I was pu- I was pumped before I hit hit that live stream button. Cerebral Faith, ten years, ten years and counting. Paul says says, this logical sequence of Stratton is interesting. Yeah, he um, he since has reworded the premises of the argument, but I don't know what they are. This one was written before his book even came out. This was written, um, let see, what's the date? Uh, this was written October 26, 2019, so uh, just a few years ago. Uh, but he's kind of... Um, He's kind of reworded some of the premises, tightened it up a little bit, made it even stronger. I personally think there's nothing wrong with the way that it's worded here, but I mean, um, it's it's basically it's basically still the same argument. It's just, um, you know, some of the terminology and stuff is just polished up a bit. But yeah. Um, by the way, uh, his book, which I referenced in that article, uh, it's been out for a while, and I already heard that he is working on a second, def- uh, second edition of it already. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you want to wait for the second edition or if you want to go ahead and get the first edition, um, but it is a fantastic book, and I think it's really accessible. You know, you would think that with it being a dissertation, that it would just be full of, You know, and it being a dissertation on Molinism of all things, you would think, gosh, this is just going to be the most full of philosophical jargon, just really hard to believe. I mean, I mean, hard to understand, but it is surprisingly accessible. Now, I, I will say, I think part of that is due to my familiarity with the debate, but even with my familiarity with the debate, I still find some articles, some videos on Molinism a little hard to understand because they're just so abstract and so philosophical and they're so full of philosopher babble that I really have to work at comprehending what is being said, even, even to this day. So this debate can get really technical really fast, and Stratton just does an excellent job of just keeping it in English. Tiago Severio Gonzalez says can we argue that if determinism were true it would imply that any reasoning is an illusion and therefore meaningless he said this at 9:18 p.m. But yeah that's basically what i argued and what um and what Stratton argues when he defends this argument um it, you know if determinism is is true reason you you it, if if you are just a physical thing, if there is no soul, if you're just a bag of chemicals on bones, as Frank Turek would put it, then you might think you are reasoning to conclusions when you examine arguments. Arguments for God's existence, arguments against God's existence, arguments for why you ought to vote Republican, or arguments for why you ought to vote Democrat. You reason through the process and you come to conclusion that you're like, I'm going to vote for so-and-so. And you think, yes, this is a really, this is a well reasoned conclusion I've come to, justified true beliefs, but it's really all just molecules in motion. It's just chemicals bubbling in your brain. Um, you are a result of, of you know, of, of multiple things. Your, the molecules in your brain, the buzzing neurons and bubbling chemicals, your genetics. And your environmental factors, how how you interact with other people and your environment, and all that. Uh, if if there is no soul, then you really are just you're just like a machine. Like I put said in the article, you're just like a can of fizzing coke. You're not really reasoning. Now you could so. And Stratton argues, well, you can't really have knowledge in that case because what is not knowledge is justified true belief. Well, if you're just going, you know, going down the stream of cause and effect, if you could just happen to end up at true beliefs just by accident, just because that's how you're, that's how the physical processes involving you ended, you know, led you. It could have led you that way, but it would have just been an accident. It would have just been the way the cookie crumbled. It wouldn't be justified because you wouldn't have had the ability to weigh different options and just to, and and to determine which belief is the better one. And if it if it's not justified, it's not knowledge. It's just a true belief. To have knowledge, you need to number one believe it. Number two, uh, your belief has to be true. And number three, you have to be justified in that belief and without the ability to deliberate and the ability to deliberate requires libertarian free will without the ability to deliberate you wouldn't you wouldn't have justification so you wouldn't have knowledge and without knowledge if, if you don't have well if you don't reason to your conclusions well then you're not being rational and so that's the that's the third premise of the free thinking argument against naturalism. That if if libertarian if libertarian free will does not exist, uh, then rationality and knowledge do not exist. Or however however he would however he would word that nowadays uh, I can't remember. Maybe he maybe he'll show up in the in the live chat or something. <laughs> um, now I have heard from Stratton himself that some of the philosophers that he has engaged with, uh, have denied premise two that 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 if the soul does not exist, libertarian free will does not exist. I'm actually more confident of that premise than I am premise three. But um, everybody, I mean, prim, premise one is true by natural by definition, and premise four, I mean, you, you can't rationality and knowledge exist. Well, are you going to deny that? If you deny that, then why should we listen to you? Uh, To deny that one is self-refuting. So, really, the argument really hinges on just defending two and three. If you can defend two and three successfully, then you've successfully defended the whole argument. And, therefore, and what I like about Tim Stratton's free-thinking argument against naturalism is two things. It refutes naturalism. uh, I mean, it shows that we are body-soul composites. It's an argument for substance dualism, but it also demonstrates that we have libertarian free will. So it refutes naturalists who say we don't have libertarian free will, and it also refutes Calvinists who say we don't have libertarian free will. It really kills two birds with one stone. Paulo Mathias says, I haven't read Stratton's book yet. I plan on doing it soon, but I really like the article that summarizes his thesis on the free thinking argument. And I really liked it. Well, thanks. Yeah, you should definitely, you should definitely get it. Um, it is, I think it's, I think it's one of the best books on Molinism. Um, I mean, there's John Lang's book on Molinism, but it's one of the, it's one of the examples that I had in mind when I said that some, some things can get kind of technical. Um, and Stratton, he just, he just keeps it, he just keeps the cookies on the bottom shelf. Um, and he argues his points really persuasively. And so that's, that's, I mean, it, it, the arguments are good, and I don't think it's too complicated to scare away anyone who hasn't spent, like, 30 years studying philosophy. <laughs> uh, it's not full of it's not full of scholar babble so i think it's it's accessible for so i think i think that's why it's one of my favorites for those two reasons it's the arguments are good and it's accessible so you can you can get the first edition if you want or you can wait until the second edition is published um I'm going to get the second edition whenever it comes out. I'm hoping it will be available in Logos so I can subject it to its searchability and note-taking and all the good stuff that comes with Logos. And Alexa, stop. This always happens if the stream doesn't end by 930. (laughs) But yeah. um, In this book, I mean, he talks about, you know, the cosmological quiz. He talks about the free-thinking argument against naturalism. He he does he goes into some church history like you know what does luther what's martin luther and john calvin and thomas aquinas have to say about free will and and he he, he goes into what i what what another thing i like about it is that in chapter two he talks about the biblical foundations for molinism um and basically what he does is he goes here's a list of pa- bible passages that look like they teach determinism god is meticulously sovereign over all things he controls everything and then there are also passages that really don't make, they either explicitly say, or they don't make sense unless human unless human beings have libertarian free will. So the Bible teaches that God is in control of everything, and human beings have libertarian free will. I also think he gets into, I think maybe he gets into Bible passages that talk about God's omniscience. Yeah, he does. Uh, and so basically, if human beings are free, and God is in control, and God knows everything, well, the you know what's we've got to find a view that makes sense of everything the bible has to say on this topic and of course his conclusion is that molinism can synthesize all of these bible passages and what i've said about molinism for a long time you know i'm an i'm an authorial intent guy i don't want to go with a, uh, an interpretation that doesn't you know the biblical author or or, the, or their you know ancient near eastern or greco-roman audience wouldn't have held that view I don't want to. I don't want to affirm that view. I want to read the text the way they did it. But what I think, uh, with regards to the sovereignty free will debate, is I don't really think the biblical authors had a view. <laughs> I think that if you were to walk up to Moses or King David, if he when he was writing out one of his psalms, or the Apostle Paul, if you were to say, "Hey, if God's in control, how can humans be free?" They probably would have said. I don't know, his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, you know, it works out somehow. I think they would have just appealed the mystery. So I think it's, we are free to systematize our theology and philosophize and come up with theories about how this all works. Um, I don't think the Bible teaches Molinism, but I think Molinism makes sense of everything the Bible teaches. Hello, Eric Bertaylor, 92. It's good to see you. So if that's all of the uh, interaction we have for now, uh, I will choose another article to read. And this one is on, this one is Q&A, The Moral Argument, Moral Moral Relativism, and Perfect Being Theology. A very common argument that I have heard for the existence of God is the moral argument. You argue as follows, 1. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. 2. Objective moral values and duties do exist. 3. Therefore, God exists. For number 1, it depends on what you mean by objective. If you mean a moral standard that is beyond humanity and independent of us, then you are correct. If, however, you mean there aren't emotion-based principles that possess a certain quality or type of feeling uh, referred to as a moral present in all sane persons, then no. So when someone says abortion for the sake of convenience is wrong, they are indeed saying I don't like abortion for the sake of convenience to some extent. So emotivism has some truth in it. However, they are saying it violates certain forms of feelings that are turned into principles in the minds of all sane persons, humans, which is a distinction that must be made. It is not exactly the same to say, I don't like abortion, and abortion is a moral abomination, which I would agree with in most cases. In the first case, you are saying you find it disagreeable to your feelings generally. In the second, you are saying it violates the feelings-slash-principles that have the quality-slash-type of feeling known as moral you and others have. The moral feelings-slash-principles that humans have the right to live. So calling an action immoral means it violates one of these principles. Calling an action's moral means it conforms to these principles. This is going towards the second point. Since there are, objectively speaking, certain emotion-based principles that are universally accepted hence referred to as core morality among sane people, that possess the quality known as moral, we can, in a sense, say that there is objective morality, or at least an adequate replacement. It is objectively true that humans have certain emotion-based principles that possess a certain quality, a sort of sense-slash-feeling of obligation and duty referred to as moral, It is objectively true that a society's behavior can either conform or not conform to these principles, and if they, over time, start to conform to these emotion-based principles uh, more than they had in the past, we have what is referred to as moral progress. There are moral duties explained. Now for moral obligation. An obligation is an ought. Oughts are conditional. To comply with moral principles... uh, you ought to do X, Y, and Z, and you not ought to do actions A, B, and C. Duties seem to me to be able to come from a conscience as much as a command. C.S. Lewis extensively argued in Mere Christianity that when people argue over morals, they presuppose that there is a moral standard above them that is known to both of them. That is one explanation of the facts, however, that isn't the only one. Another one is this, when people debate over morality, they assume that they have a shared ethic that both of them accept. However, if someone does not share the same values as me, I often attempt to understand their values so I can launch an argument they will accept. If I am debating someone on abortion who rejects the assumption that life is inherently valuable, I may try to give reasons why life is good and taking it away is bad that isn't based on that assumption it will rob them of all positive future experiences, it violates their consent, etc. Or alternatively, you could show them that they really do think life is valuable with thought experiments, as all mentally healthy humans naturally view life as valuable. In other words, assumed shared morals explain this phenomenon as well as assumed objective morality does. For the second premise, if, as William Lane Craig argues, we have a sense of a realm of objective moral values that is on par with our sense experience of the world, why does morality reflect emotions at so much? Is that really true? I would never say that my experience of objective values even remotely stacks up to sensory experience. Moral experience seems to be rooted in emotions, or emotion-based principles, as I like to put it to distinguish my view from simple emotivism, and can to some degree change based on emotions and mood. This is quite unlike sense experience. And further, exactly what data are our moral senses registering? Are they registering God's nature slash commands an abstract realm the way God meant for morality to work? How can the moral sense even remotely register God's nature or the purpose he had for morality? We would need other methods to work with this. Finding out his commands, nature, purposes, etc., via data, reasoning uh, of God revealing it in a vision. I suppose he could plan intuitions in our heart, however, that is essentially emotion-based principles, which we would expect on evolution, and emotion-based principles aren't data that indicate truth. An abstract realm is an odd one. I flatly deny that I seem to be experiencing any abstract realm of moral principles floating about somewhere. I feel like some things are really wrong and others are really right by, hand, by a higher standard, but I don't feel like I am experiencing the, a higher standard coming in from some abstract realm. The emotion-based principle idea seems uh, more agreeable to experience. And further, exactly what data are our moral sensors registering? Are they registering God's nature slash commands, an abstract realm, the way God meant for morality to work? How can the moral sense even remotely register God's nature or the purpose he had for morality? We would need other methods to work with this, finding out his commands, nature, purposes, etc. via data, reasoning, or God revealing it in a vision. I suppose he could plant intuitions on our heart. However, that is essentially emotion-based principles, which we would expe- expect on... Did I just read that I must be getting i must be getting tired <laughs> this is this is in case relativism or nihilism is shown to be true as an entailment of atheism an unpleasant implication both relativists, uh, relativists and non-relativists frequently argue follows from moral relativism and could argue follows for from nihilism is that moral relativism entails that we should tolerate the views and practices of other people and cultures no matter how important they seem to us since none of them conform to an objective standard any better. But this assumes the very thing moral relativism denies, that objective morality exists. What if my subjective morals require that I impose them on others? Is it objectively wrong to be intolerant, and is it objectively wrong to impose your values on others? I think I've chosen a long one again. If objective morality exists, then it is absurd to maintain that all cultures are equal, and if it doesn't, then the cultures that impose their values on others aren't any worse, objectively, than the ones that don't impose their values on others. This is the dilemma of the people who use relativism as a justification for insane levels of intolerance. If they affirm the first part of their argument, morality is relative, the second part, all cultures should be tolerated no matter what, is refuted as most people's Subjective morals do not support that principle naturally, nor does core morality. If, on the other hand, they deny the first part, the second has no ground to stand on. Although the moral values of most people respect and even encourage non-harmful cultural differences about things like the foods people eat, which religion they believe, which days they celebrate, etc., this means that some level of tolerance will probably prevail and the core morality tolerates other cultures in most cases. Another implication that is said to follow from moral relativism is that if morality is relative, or if moral nihilism is true, atheists and other skeptics can't use the problem of evil since there is no objective source of good and evil. This argument came from C.S. Lewis again, and Christian apologists love to use it. However, the problem is that it doesn't work. Both atheists and Christian worldviews agree that there are certain core values, that are referred to by the word moral. The atheist typically believes they came from evolution, by natural selection, and the Christian believes they came from God. From the perspective of the atheist, the Christian is projecting their morals onto God and claiming that this being created existence. They see an apparent contradiction between these attributes. This being is said to have and the reality we observe around us. And further, the Bible explicitly claims that core morality is God-given. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. So the Christian worldview does at least apparently have problem of evil. The atheist one does not. Atheists can also have natural core morality and thus natural moral rights as well. The second problem that I have heard you and other Christian apologists mention against atheists is that we criticize the Bible on moral grounds while many of us reject objective morality. Is this an inconsistency? Well, the same reasoning can be brought to bear against your objection here as with the problem of evil. Since the Bible teaches that basic core morality which is also objective morality in Christianity, is written on people's hearts, we can use that core morality to evaluate the Bible's practices and criticize them. Those that don't violate core morality but violate moral standards, however, cannot be used as a refutation for Christianity, Islam, or any other religion, as the text would contain true morality completely rather than values uh, that would objectively deviate to some degree from the way morality was intended to be. If the religion is proven false on other grounds, then these issues can be used as a reason to oppose the religion because it violates the subjective morals of you or your society. A practical example, stoning a rape victim is shocking core morality since he she was forced to do it. Therefore, it is killing an innocent person. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 23 to 27 gives a rule that if a man sleeps with a woman outside the city, he is to be stoned however she will not be punished because no one was there to hear her scream however if she was in the city she is also stoned because she did not scream for help this uh, this ignores obvious problems like the fact that some people freeze up in terror in those situations that he could have threatened to kill her if she she didn't comply etc so one can not only say this law strongly goes against the moral law the bible claim uh, claims god gave us it also shows that whoever thought up this law was not perfectly uh, not a perfectly rational god thus christianity and judaism are false unless this is some sort of scribal error which would require evidence either way this passage cannot be the word of god this is a moral critique of the bible that is perfectly compatible with nihilism or relativism however i think i should give an example of an argument that cannot be used as a refutation for christianity many people uh Criticize Christianity for prohibiting sex outside of marriage, hence referred to as fornication. It may be true that on non-Christian views, fornication is perfectly acceptable and compatible with core morality in many cases. But if Christians are right, then the Creator has prohibited us from doing so, and since He created us, He has the right to prohibit us from doing so. Core morality says that it would be ungrateful to disobey this command and therefore wrong, so this cannot be used as a disproof or as a reason to view it as Unreasonable. An atheist I can, however, if they prove Christianity wrong, can use this that Christianity is a bad thing if they maintain that the prohibition on fornication harms them. Hmm. An interesting argument you make is that the moral argument not only gives you a perfectly good God, but it gives you the Christian God, or at least the being with the same attributes of the Trinity. You write in Q&A, can nat- can't natural theology be uh, used to prove the existence of any old deity that, quote, the moral argument requires that a necessary, a necessary morally perfect personal being be the measuring stick of good and evil. He must be necessary because many moral truths appear to be necessarily true, and necessary truths can't be grounded in a contingent being. He must be morally perfect because an evil being can't be the standard of morality. Why? Because if that were the case, Hitler would be closer to meeting the standard of the good than Mother Teresa. The moral perfection of this being entails that he must be all-loving and perfectly loving. He must be a trinity in order to be a being of perfect love. Why? If this being is not a triune being, then he cannot be a being of perfect love, because love requires three things. One, a lover. Two, someone to love. And three, a relationship going on between the lover and the loved one. If God is only one person rather than three, then before he created any other persons, angels, humans, he had no one to love. Since he had no one to love, he therefore could not be perfectly loving. And if he wasn't perfectly loving, he was He was morally deficient, since it seems to me at least that love is a moral virtue. Only a God who is multi-personal could be perfectly loving from eternity past. Christianity is the only religion in the world that has a multi-personal God. Therefore, only Christianity is consistent with this argument's conclusion. I would like to challenge two things about this argument. One, that if the moral argument is correct, then the God who grounds morality must himself be perfect. Two, that a perfectly moral being must be a trinity. For one, the being could have moral principles inherent to its nature, but also have evil that desires contrary to the moral principles in its nature. The moral aspects of its nature could be the standard of morality. Clearly, God's omniscience wouldn't be standard of the, the part of the standard of morality, yet this is a part of his nature which illustrates that it isn't his entire moral nature, just the moral parts. Two, you write that if this being is not a triune being, then he cannot be a being of perfect love because love requires three things. One, a lover. Two, someone to love. And three, a relationship going on between the lover and the loved one. If God is only one person rather than three, then before he created any other persons, humans and angels, he had no one to love. Since he had no one to love, he could not be perfectly loving. And if he wasn't perfectly loving, he was a morally deficient being, since it seems to me that love is a moral virtue. I sort of dispute two and definitely dispute three. Can parents love the children before giving birth to them or even before their conception? Can they act loving by preparing to be able to provide a good home for their future child? Can God be loving before creation by simply choosing to create the world that people would exist in and creating the creation? On Molinism, this is even worse for your argument because God knows exactly what individuals will exist and everything about them, so I see no reason why God can't just love future beings he will create. Or on open theism, beings he might create and still be a perfectly loving being. And a second attempt, why can't God as a maximally great being just have the disposition to be perfectly loving under the circumstances when there are beings to love after all if god can just have the disposition to be courageous why not a disposition to be loving and further what if i used your argument to argue that god must be perfectly forgiving and forgiveness requires a forgiver someone to forgive and an offense committed by someone by the someone to forgive against the forgiver i could then argue that god before the creation had to be something like a trinity where one of the beings had transgressed against uh, the other beings, and therefore one of the persons of the Trinity is a sinner. Would not any attempt to refute the forgiveness argument also refute the love argument? I do hope you can answer most of the criticism here, as I would love a justification to believe in a perfectly good God. This would make life a lot better, Sam. Now I will be back in just just one minute, but I've got to get I've I've got to get something to drink before I continue because my mouth is getting really dry. Quick intermission. I should have known better than to just bring one Dr. Pepper with me. Okay, <clears throat> now on to my response, Mr. Minton's response. It's always a pleasure to interact with you on these issues, Sam. You are a thoughtful individual, and you clearly think your, uh, think through the issues deeply. I also would love for you to believe in a perfectly good God, not simply so that your life will be a lot better, so that your, but so that your afterlife will be infinitely better. Therefore, I will do my best to answer your concerns about the soundness of the moral argument. Emotions and Moral Intuitions If I understood you correctly, Sam, and I always read your emails slowly to ensure to do do so to the best of my ability, your first point is that our moral intuition is really just our emotional dislike of certain behaviors. These emotional repulsions are universal, sure, but they are, nevertheless, simply emotional repulsions. I don't think our moral intuitions can be reduced to simply our emotive reactions to actions we dislike. There are things that make me mad that I do not think morally wrong. One example that immediately comes to mind is people who chew their food loudly. You know the kind. Their chewing sounds like an agitating washing machine or someone slogging through thick mud. I cannot stand people who chew loudly. Yet, if someone chewed loudly behind me in a cafeteria, while he'd make me mad, I would never say he was doing something morally wrong. I wouldn't rebuke him and tell him to repent or anything like that. On the other hand, there are things I do think are morally wrong, but they don't make me angry. I think prostitution is morally wrong. Nevertheless, if I'm driving down the street... And I see an obvious streetwalker on the corner. I'm not going to feel angry in the slightest. I don't think the streetwalker ought to be ought. I don't think the streetwalker ought to be a streetwalker. But I'm unemotional about the subject, except for maybe uh, except for maybe pity, since I know the that women only do this kind of thing uh, when they hit rock bottom. But admittedly, many things I consider to be evil do make me angry. So there are three categories of behavior that undermine the proposal that moral intuition is reducible to dislike of certain behaviors. One, there are things that make me mad that I don't consider a moral wrong, for example, loud chewing. Two, there are things I consider to be morally wrong that don't make me mad, for example, prostitution. Three, there are things that both make me mad and I consider to be moral wrongs. So the law of identity is not applicable to anger and moral tuition. I can come up with several more examples of things that fall into the first category as well as things that fall into the third. Example one, if someone throws a blue shell at me while we're playing Mario Kart while I'm in first place about to cross the finish line, and the blue shell causes my character to spin out of control and allow my buddy to pass by me, I might rage quit. Speaking of things that make me mad, I wish those dogs would shut up. I don't know if it's p- being picked up on the audio on the audio or not. Actually, in my own case, I probably wouldn't. I'm a good sport and but I do know there is such a thing as a sore loser. The sore loser gets mad when he is beaten, yet the victor did nothing morally wrong, and the sore loser uh, and everyone else knows it. The victor simply did the best he could in playing the game, employing every strategy he could within the confines of the rules, and he came out the victor. Example 2. Some people can testify that in the past, they've been in a hurry while on the road, and someone ahead of them was not going as fast as they would like. The person in front of them were going the speed limit, yet that wasn't enough. That wasn't fast enough. They didn't do anything wrong. In fact, it's right to obey the speed limit. Example 3. I used to have a dog named Max. I had a bell on my front door and trained Max to ring it with his paw whenever he needed to go outside to urinate or defecate. There would be, there would be days when he would ring the bell very frequently, thus being disruptive when I was trying to read a book, play a video game, or watch a TV show. And, I'm, and in most of these instances, he didn't do anything. We just walked around the yard for 15 minutes. I'd be very irritated with Max making me go outside for no reason. I had something better to do than walk around my front yard. I understand that when you gotta go, you gotta go, but if he doesn't have to go, he shouldn't ring the bell. Yet I would never say that Max did anything morally wrong. He just did something I didn't like. Example four. When my cat Jellybean sits on the keyboard when I'm trying to write a blog post, I get irritated. I repeatedly move her out of the way, yet she keeps coming back. It's very annoying when she does this. Nevertheless, I wouldn't charge my cat with violating the moral law. Now, by contrast, when I learned about what happened during the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, when I learned the details of what the Nazis did to innocent Jews, I was incensed and disgusted, and I thought to myself that the fires of hell could never be too hot for these lowly pieces of scum. If someone someone stole my Nintendo Switch, God forbid, I'd be really ticked off at whoever robbed me. If someone poured a a bottle of water all over my keyboard to ruin it, I'd likewise be outraged. And yet, unlike in the four aforementioned examples, while I would be angry in all of these cases, I recognize, consciously and subconsciously, that there is a real moral difference between these categories of actions. There's a real moral difference between beating me at a video game and stealing a video game from me. There's a real moral difference between blocking me from my keyboard and destroying my keyboard. There's a real moral difference between constantly interrupting my theological studies and slaughtering innocent people. If you took the time, I'm sure you could come up with examples of things like the above in your own case. You could probably think of things that anger you that you don't necessarily consider morally wrong. Things you do consider morally wrong but don't don't get you outraged. And things that you consider morally wrong that do outrage you. So, in conclusion, our moral into our moral intuitions are not reducible to our emotions. I don't consider things wrong merely because they make me angry, but because I just know that they're wrong, regardless of how they make me feel. So when you say, quote, for the second premise, if as William Lane Craig argues, we have a sense. We have a sense of a realm of objective moral values that is on par with our sense experience of the world. Why does morality reflect emotions so much? Is that really true? I would say, yes, it is true. Our sense of moral right and wrong is indeed on par with our sense of the physical world. And while emotions often accompany our reactions to good deeds and crimes, our evaluation of the moral status of them are independent of our emotions. Just as you can feel pain from someone slicing your arm open, but your physical response is not based is not what you based your knowledge on. Whether there's a swordsman in front of you, uh, it, even if it didn't cause, even if it didn't cause pain, even if it felt good, you'd still know that something exists in the external world that cuts you. That that cut you. We have a sense of right and wrong that is cognitively rooted within us, and these don't depend on our emotions. As I've just demonstrated, you wrote, quote, moral experience seems to be rooted in emotions, or emotion based principles, as I like to put it to distinguish my view from simple emotivism, and can, to some degree, change based on emotions and mood. This is quite unlike sense experience. I disagree, uh, end quote. I disagree with you entirely. Not only do my distinctions above refute this concept, but I also think forgiveness refutes this concept. If I can get over something that someone did to me that I considered wrong, eventually I won't be bitter over it anymore. If they come to me in sincere apology with a true desire to reconcile, I'll forgive them. It'll take a while for the bitter feeling to go away, but as soon as I make the decision to forgive, the healing process has begun. And there have been indeed been things that people have done to me that I don't harbor resentment over anymore. Yet when I remember them, I still consider them wrong. The fact that my emotions over the actions have subsided haven't changed my opinion on the moral status of the action. Exactly what data are our moral senses registering? You wrote, quote, and further, exactly what data are our moral senses registering? Are they registering God's nature commands? An abstract realm, the way God meant for morality to work? How can the moral sense even remotely register God's nature or the purpose he had for morality? We would need other methods to work with this, finding out his commands, nature, purposes, etc., via sense data, reasoning, or God revealing it in a vision. I suppose he could plant intuitions on our heart. However, that is essentially emotion-based principles, which we would also expect on evolution uh, and emotion-based principles aren't data that indicates truth, end quote. What our moral sense is registering is simply that certain actions and behaviors are right and others are wrong. You're correct in saying that our moral sense doesn't even remotely register God's nature or the purpose he had for morality, and that we would need other methods to work with this. That method is philosophy. That's what the moral argument is all about. Just as science only shows us that the universe had a beginning at the Big Bang and nothing more, So our moral intuition tells us that morality is objective and nothing more. To get from Big Bang to Big Banger, a transcendent creator, you need to use the tool of philosophy slash logic to formulate a sound argument for a transcendent cause. Likewise, having reflected on the moral law and realizing that objective moral values and duties must be grounded ontologically grounded in something, we can then ask, what type of grounding is needed? And we can philosophically reason to what we think is the most plausible ontological grounds for objective moral values and duties. I think God's character and commands are the best grounds for these, and I am willing to contend that no other proposal uh, given in an atheistic framework is tenable. And indeed, I do this in my book, The Case for the One True God, as well as other blog posts on this website. By the way, a book that you can win at the end of this live stream. If you, if you put in the live chat that you want to enter. So our moral intuitions only get us to the conclusion some things are really right and others are really wrong, just as cosmology only gets us to the universe began to exist 14 billion years ago. Philosophical reasoning must be employed to take these facts of nature and make them into a case for a creator and a moral lawgiver. Moral Relativism and the Problem of Evil I largely agree with most of what you said regarding relativism's dilemma. They indeed cannot say we should be tolerant of others and should not impose our values on others. After all, morality is subjective. It's like the taste of ice cream on their view. Who are you to impose your moral values on me? But, like you said, what if my subjective moral values are that I should impose them on other people? By saying I shouldn't impose my values on others, you're pushing your values on me. Thus, on I can't, I cannot, one cannot affirm relativism and also make moral fiat's such as you ought not to judge others. You ought, you ought to tolerate other cultures and beliefs. You ought not to impose your morals on others. Uh, where do oughts come from if morality is subjective? You're totally right in pointing this out. You go on to say, quote, another implication that is said to follow from moral relativism is that if morality is relative or if moral nihilism is true, atheists and other skeptics can't use the problem of evil since there is no objective source of good and evil. This argument came from C.S. Lewis again, and Christian apologists love to use it. However, the problem is that it doesn't work. Both atheists and Christian worldviews agree that there are certain core values that are referred to by the word moral. The atheist typically believes they came from evolution by natural selection, and the Christian believes they came from God. From the perspective of the atheist, the Christian is projecting their morals onto a God and claiming that this belief uh, created existence, quote. I would argue, and I have argued in my blog posts and books, that the atheist is wrong in saying morality comes from evolution. Subjective morality could come from evolution, sure, but not objective morality. Consider that if evolution had gone differently, we might have different morals. In fact, Charles Darwin himself said this in his writings. He wrote, quote, If men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, there can hardly be a doubt that our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers, and mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters, and no one would think of interfering, End quote. What reason is there to think our, our morality is objectively true other than this other evolutionary lineage? As William Lane Craig writes, quote, To think of human beings as special on atheism is to be guilty of speciesism, an unjustified bias towards one's own species. Thus, if there is no God, then any basis for regarding the herd morality evolved by Homo sapiens as objectively true seems to have been removed. So if theism is false, it's hard to see what basis remains for the affirmation of objective moral values, and in particular, the special value of human beings. On the atheistic view, human beings are just animals, and animals aren't uh, morally obligated towards one another. Now, one objection I frequently receive is that if evolution is true, and if an evolutionary account could explain why we morally intuit the way we do, Doesn't that undermine the reliability of our moral intuitions? I don't think so. First, such a response commits the genetic fallacy. How we learned morality is irrelevant to whether morality is objective. Even if we evolved the intuition that killing innocent people is wrong, it wouldn't entail that killing innocent people is wrong is not objectively true. Of course, one might say, well, maybe it wouldn't undermine the truth of our moral beliefs, but it would undermine the epistemological justification for them. After all, as you said, rewind, uh, rewind the clock and creatures with different moral values would have evolved. The problem with this response is that it only works if God is taken out of the picture. If God guided evolution to produce our faculties in such a way, for example, through a middle knowledge view of divinity, God could guide the evolutionary history of the world in such a way that his creatures evolved the moral intuitions that intuitively recognize the moral values and duties that correspond with his character. So, even if what we consider right and wrong are the products of biological evolution They would still be reliable and tell us objective moral truths. Only if atheistic evolution were true uh, would I argue that evolution would undermine the reliability of our moral intuitions. Those who use the sociobiological account to undermine premise one thus beg the question in favor of atheism. As for saying that skeptics cannot use the problem of evil because their worldview doesn't permit objective morality exists, I think there is some truth to this. Though, if you read my chapter on the problem of evil in the case for the one true God, you'll see that I use this tactic a bit differently than, say, say, presuppositionalist apologists do, and even some evidentialists. Rather than saying atheists should just be quiet about the problem of evil because their framework entails either moral relativism or moral nihilism, or saying you wouldn't even know there was evil unless you knew God exists, I will argue the following. 1. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. 2. Evil exists. 3. Therefore, objective moral values and duties exist. 4. Therefore, God exists. Ironically, rather than disproving the existence of God, the existence of real evil demonstrates exactly the opposite. The only way for the atheist to get out of the argument is to do one of two things. One thing he could do is deny that objective morality exists. But if he takes this route, then he's denying that real evil exists. And if real evil does not exist, then there is no real problem of evil. What the atheist calls evil are just things he doesn't like. So we can ask... Why demand that God kowtow to your personal tastes? On the other hand, if he insists that evil does exist, and it is not grounded in his or anybody else's opinion, then he's got to provide some alternative ontological grounding for morality than the existence of God. And I've never seen an atheist successfully do this. Sam, you and I have done plenty of debating on the problem of evil. So you probably know that I don't consider this the only thing necessary to, co- to refute the problem of evil. We apologists still must explain why God, being all-powerful and all-loving, would allow his moral law to be so widely violated. And here is where I'd appeal to the free will defense, the greater good theodicy, etc., as we've discussed in previous conversations. The Moral r- Arguments Relation to Evil Bible Verses The issue that I and other Christian apologists have with atheists criticizing the Bible on moral grounds is that their worldview doesn't have an adequate grounding for morality. The existence of a necessarily existent, morally perfect, sovereign being, God, is the best explanation for how objective morality is ontologically grounded. So if God grounds morality, then to accuse God of immorality is inconsistent. You are essentially saying that the being whose character is the standard of morality somehow violates the standard of morality. Yet the standard of morality is himself. How can the standard violate the standard? This makes no sense. Additionally, I usually make the point, since I don't appeal to the Bible to defend the moral argument, the atheist ought not be allowed to point to evil Bible verses to refute it. Natural theology argues for the existence of God without making any appeals to Scripture. It relies solely on philosophy, logic, and occasionally science in the cases of the Kalam and teleological arguments. Therefore, it isn't fair that I must make my case without touching Scripture. The skeptic can use Scripture all he wants to argue against me. If I'm not allowed to use Scripture, then neither is my detractor. I'm not allowed to use it, and rightly so. Now, this isn't to say that God doesn't sometimes do things that appear harsh or unfair in the Bible's historical records. And any good apologist would do his best to show how and what seems how what seems to be immoral is not really, once you understand things like the immediate context, the cultural context, or inferences we can draw from other scriptures, uh, what the Bible says about the justice of God, etc., For interested readers, Paul Copan has an excellent book on this called Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. I highly recommend it. In the case of Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 to 27, the text isn't calling for a rape victim to be stoned at all. Let's look at what the text says. Quote, If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, And you shall stone them to death with stones the young woman because she did not cry for help though she was in the city and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife so you shall purge the evil from your midst deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 23 to 24. i read a very helpful commentary on this somewhere i can't remember if if, whether i read about this passage in is god a moral monster by paul copan or the big book of bible difficulties by norman geisler and thomas howe i may have read about it in both But wherever I read it, I remember the commentator saying that the difference between a woman crying out and not crying out is indicated uh, whether she was actually raped or committed adultery and was trying to claim it was rape to get out of trouble. In other words, if she didn't cry out, she must have consented. After all, a woman who freely chooses for a man to have intercourse with her doesn't cry out for help. If she consented then it was adultery, not rape. If it was adultery, then she was to be stoned, since that was the penalty for adultery. See Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. Now this would only apply to someone that was raped in an area with a high probability she would be heard if she yelled. This is where the outside of town part comes into play. You see, if a woman was in a secluded place, a place with not many people around, it would be impossible to prove whether she cried out for help or not. She could have cried out with the result of no one hearing her, or she could have stayed silent. The Jewish court would not be able to know which occurred. This is why, if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. Deuteronomy twenty-two twenty-five. But you object this ignores obvious problems like the fact that some people freeze up in terror in those situations that she could have threatened to kill her if she didn't, if she didn't comply etc but can we think of special but but we can think of special circumstances in any kind of situation and criticize a law based on that a case law mind you do we criticize the law that if you're in position of illegal drugs You go to prison on the basis that some people might sneak them into your suitcase to get the cops off their trail? This does happen. Rarely, but it does occur. That's why, when I went to the ETS conference back in Colorado, I kept a close eye on my luggage the whole time I was in Atlanta's and Colorado's airports. Would you accuse the lawmakers of not being fair or rational? Yes, there would be some circumstances in which the woman was unable to cry out, but these would be the exceptions to the rule. Now, if you think God could have come up with some criteria for judging these special circumstances, what would they be? How would the Jewish court be able to determine whether a woman stayed silent because of consent or stayed silent because she was threatened or froze up in fear? The woman could say the latter was her reason for being silent, but how could one know she was telling the truth? That's not mine. I don't see this as a reason to affirm that whoever thought up this law was not a perfectly irrational god. We can nitpick and find difficult exceptions and special circumstances for all laws, divinely given or not, both ancient and modern. No laws are perfect because, unfortunately, the human condition is fallen. People lie, people cheat, people find loopholes. I recently came across a post in which oh oh boy, this aged like milk. I wouldn't have I would not have quoted this person today. Uh <laughs> Ravi Zacharias was quoted as saying The reason our law books have thousands and thousands of regulations is that we can't obey ten simple laws arrived in stone paraphrased. Indeed, this is true not just for American law books, but the Torah as well. A great deal of what you find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy has to do with how the authorities should handle specific cases in which the Ten Commandments, ten simple commands on two tablets, were broken. It would be impossible for anyone to record every conceivable circumstance and how to deal with it, even if God revealed it. Moses would be like, God, stop, I've run out of papyrus. When did I write this? June 4th, 2019. The Divine Identity Argument. You write, quote, The being could have moral principles inherent to its nature, but also have evil desires contrary to the moral principles in its nature. The moral aspects of its nature could be the standard of morality, end quote then in that case, whenever I did something evil, I would be in line with the standard of morality. If God were mean-spirited, then I would be in line with his will when I am mean-spirited. Thus, to attain this this sort of good-evil hybrid nature would be the height of living according to the moral law. This is absurd. To borrow an analogy of C.S. Lewis, this would be like saying... Uh, you know a crooked line by comparing it with a somewhat straight and somewhat crooked line. Quote, clearly, God's omniscience wouldn't be a part of the standard of morality, yet this is a part of his nature, which illustrates that it isn't his entire nature that is the moral standard. End quote. This This is a misunderstanding by what I mean when I say God's nature. By God's nature, I obviously don't mean aspects of his being like omniscience, omnipotence, etc. I mean his moral nature, his character. Quote, can parents love the children before giving birth to them, or even before their conception? Can they act loving by preparing uh, to be able to provide a good home for their future child? Can't God be acting before love creation by simply choosing to create the world so that people would exist in it, and existing the Uh, and creating the creation. On Molinism, this is even worse for your argument because God knows exactly what individuals will exist and everything about them, so I see no reason why God can't just love the future beings he will create, or on open theism, beings he might create and still be a perfectly loving being. End quote. This is related to what I've written in my blog post, God's Freedom to Love Revisited. At the end of that blog post, my conclusion was... Quote, so perhaps it can be said that God can love those who do pre- who do not presently exist, but he cannot love those who will never exist. God loved me in the first century when he died on the cross because he decided to actualize a possible world in which I would exist and fall into sin. End quote. Emphasis in original. Now, this, of course, would at first glance seem to make me inconsistent. It would seem on, the, on one hand that I am saying God cannot be loving before the creation of any humans, yet God loved us before we ever came into being. Yet a subtle nuance needs to be made clear. While God can certainly make the choice to love someone before they exist, he can only do so by deciding that their existence will be actual. If God chooses to actualize one of the feasible worlds in which they never come to be, God has made the decision not to love them. Jesus didn't die on the cross for their sins because this sinner's very existence is a counterfactual. Even still, God can choose to love someone before they exist, yet until they exist, God cannot express that love for them. There's no one to express the love to. I've already said that I have I have said that I've already chosen to love my wife in another blog post even though I don't know her yet. However, although I have decided to love her, until I actually meet her, I cannot express my love for her. I can only resolve that I will eventually express it when we meet. In a state in which God and God alone exists, he would have no one to express love to unless he consisted of multiple persons. Therefore, on a Unitarian view of God, while he could have the disposition to be loving, and could even volitionally choose to love creatures that he planned on creating, the expression of this love would have to wait for their creation. Now, it seems to me that you are a greater being if you are expressing love than if you merely have the disposition to love. A being greater than which no being can be conceived would be a being constantly expressing love. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he in one in one sense loved you. After all, you were the reason he chose to go to the cross in the first place. He knew of the sins you would commit and took your punishment for those sins long before you even existed to commit them. In another sense, though, the full expressions of Christ's love didn't come into manifestation until you were born. Then and only then would Sam exist for God to pursue a loving relationship and for his shed blood to actually wash away those sins. Now, what about your parody argument involving forgiveness? Would not any attempt to refute the forgiveness argument also refute the love argument? This final point of yours is pertinent to both the moral argument and the ontological argument, since I make the same point that the god of both of those arguments prove uh, to to exist must be a trinity. I think it's obvious that for a being to be maximally great, he must be morally perfect, good to the greatest extent possible. To be morally perfect, one must be a perf- one must be perfectly loving. To be perfectly loving, one must be be expressing that love. Without the ability to express that love, while the maximally great being could have a loving disposition, he would not be loving until other persons came into being. I think perfect goodness is a necessary condition for maximal greatness, and perfect goodness involves the expression of perfect love. Hence, for the maximally great being to be loving in all impossible worlds in which only the maximally great being ever exists, he must consist of more than one person. Love is, at minimum, patient, kind, selfless, selfless, not boastful, not proud. To express kindness and patience and so on requires other persons. Now, do these other persons also need to be sinful in order for there to be forgiveness going on within the Godhead? Well, it would depend on whether or not you think the active expression of forgiveness is a necessary condition. To an active expression of love, which is also a necessary condition of moral perfection. I don't think it is. It would only be required of a loving being to forgive if the persons to whom he is in relation were in need of it. But if they were not in need of it, then a perfectly loving and perfectly good being can maintain his perfect love and goodness by merely having the disposition to forgive. In other words, forgiveness as a part of a loving nature, is dependent on the existence of evil. But love, in general, is dependent only on the existence of other persons, regardless of whether they've done something wrong or not. Now, if you think that the constant expression of forgiveness is necessary for a being to be perfectly loving, and ergo perfectly good, then you'll need to provide some argument for that love the active expression of it not merely the disposition requires other persons to exist and so does forgiveness however while i think the former is an entailment of moral perfection i am not convinced that the latter is so i don't think the reductio ad absurdum works now even if the reductio ad absurdum did work it wouldn't undermine the moral or ontological arguments it would just mean at worst that we at worst that we couldn't extrapolate the property of moral perfection to conclude that the moral lawgiver slash the maximally great being is a trinity. Insofar as the divine identity argument is concerned, it would still be a powerful argument, even if it still didn't get you uniquely to the Christian conception of God. In fact, my realization of the love requires God to be a trinity argument came very late in the development of inference to the one true God, now re-released under the title, The Case for the One True God. Originally, I was simply going to argue that the moral and ontological arguments narrows the field down to possible religions, Judaism and Christianity. This is because getting omnipotence, omnipresence, omnibenevolence and necessary existence, the ontological argument, and getting necessary existence and moral perfection, the moral arguments, narrows the possible deities down either to the Unitarian Yahweh of modern Judaism or the Trinitarian Yahweh of Christianity. My initial plan was then to eliminate Judaism by means of studying the historical evidence of, for Jesus's divine self-understanding, death, and resurrection. Worst-case scenario is that if you're right, I've only slightly overstated my case, and I'd have to revise my book. However, I don't think your reductio ad absurdum argument succeeds. It seems intuitively clear to me that a being expressing love is greater than a being who merely has the disposition to be loving. But it is not at all clear that a being who is constantly expressing forgiveness is greater than one who only has a forgiving disposition. Conclusion: I hope that I've answered these concerns regarding the moral argument to your satisfaction, Sam. So that we are going on two hours and twenty-six minutes. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to uh, interact with the chat for maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, and then I will do the. You know, random name generator to say who won the giveaway. Uh, Let me see. How many arguments did I... How many articles did I actually get to read tonight? Um, More. Four. (laughs) I only got to read four. Uh, I had listed 14. Uh, better Better to list too many than not enough, I guess. I chose the best ones... Uh, the ones that were the most thoughtful, the ones that, and the ones that I thought, you know, had the best engagement. Um, and most of these came from a guy named Sam. Now, this Sam is the one that I've mentioned before. I've dial I've had very lengthy dialogues with him for like, I'm say three years now on like pretty much every single apologetic issue from the Kalam cosmological argument to the problem. I mean, really, the only thing we haven't discussed is the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know why. I tried to get him to discuss the resurrection of Jesus, but he he says he's, like, read my blog post series and watched my video series on it, but we haven't really... But, yeah, pretty much an ongoing conversation with him, and I I pray that he comes to know Jesus. But, like like, most of the articles I've read tonight were by him... Uh, some of them weren't the ones that I had picked, but didn't get to read. But he he gave he he gave most of the some of he he paved the way for the writing of some of the best articles, uh, Q and A articles uh, that I wrote. Um, Paulo Matthias says uh, he said at nine forty p.m. I will need to leave now. May God bless your ministry for many more years to Evan. Um, well, thanks, uh, Paulo, and thanks for sticking around this long. God bless you. Eric verthaler ninety two says, "Can Christian watch? Can Christians watch horror films?" I would say this. Um, this is kind of a random question, uh, it seems to me, but I, I'll answer. I'll answer it anyway. Um, I just would say that it has. It's a really a freedom in Christ conscience issue. If you uh, feel convicted about it if you feel like oh this is something I really shouldn't be watching this is this is not good this is not for me then you probably shouldn't do it I would recommend that you go read Romans chapter 14 um, anything not done in good faith is sin if you are not confident if you are not a hundred percent confident in your mind that it is okay for you to watch you know hor- horror films, Um, regardless of what kind they might be, slasher flick, serial killers, or even stuff with more demonic stuff in it. If if you're not 100% convinced, if if you're even just like 50-50, like, yeah, maybe it's okay, maybe it's not, I'd just say, don't do it. But if you don't see anything wrong with it, then, I mean, there's certainly no scriptural mandate. I mean, horror movies weren't even a thing when the Bible was written. So the biblical authors really couldn't speak to that issue. But um, I would just say go with your conscience. But I would say I would recommend checking out some of Brian Godawa's uh, work. I can't remember what book he talks about it in. I think it might be The Imagination of God or, God, um, or something. Um, but he talks about how God actually used, you know, the ancient equivalent of horror uh, in the Bible. And Brian Godawa goes so far as to say that horror is God's favorite genre. Uh, So, yeah, I love Brian Godawa's Chronicles of the Nephilim novel series um, and his Chronicles of the Apocalypse, which is Chronicles of the Apocalypse is basically preterist left behind. It's left behind for preterists. And it's it's really good. Um, and he's you know, he's written some his novels are like really De- Deuteronomy 32 worldview, Nephilim, you know, Michael Heiserian stuff. Um, and I had him on the podcast, the audio podcast quite a while back before it was fused with the um, the, uh, the live web show. Faith Unaltered says, Congrats on 10 years, brother. And no, the dogs aren't on the audio that I can make out. Of you. Oh, I'm good to hear that because I, I could certainly hear them. Um my cousins dogs, they just like they bark at everything. And um, yeah, ten years. August 12, twenty twelve. I just deci- I cerebral went up on to the internet. Depths of Pentecost says, Congratulations on ten years, Evan. Thank you. Philip Chad press Chad Prescott says happy Sabbath day cerebral faith video keep the faith in Jesus Christ and have a blessing Sabbath day from Barbados, my name is Chad Prescott thank you Chad so that is all the comments that we have So let me find a random name generator. Uh, Unlike the last time I had a book giveaway, uh, which was like last season on the Cerebral Faith podcast, I think it was sometime during the Doctrine of the Trinity series where I had several people. I really only have like one entry to my my knowledge. Let me go up and see if anybody – I don't want to make the mistake – of thinking that no one else entered, but there's really no point in pulling up the audio generator if only one if only one person is entered because he has a one in one ch- <laughs> he has a one in one chance of winning. And Tra- Travis, if that if you're still here, that's you. <laughs> that's you, buddy. You're you're the one who won the you're the one who won the um. I, I think. Hold on. Let me. Let me go over to Facebook. I think all of the—I, i I've, This is the first time I've ever simulcasted to Facebook and YouTube at the same time, so I think. Any, I think all of my comments should be here in the in the Streamyard. I just don't want to goof up and leave somebody out. Um, no, there's nobody on the Facebook post. All of the comments are coming from YouTube, so. And Travis, he 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 preempted his on on an earlier post. He opted in for it. So yeah, I don't need to use the the random name generator because there's there's only one. So yeah, Travis, you won. Congratulations. Um, You will now don't do it. Do not do it here uh, here on YouTube for everyone to see. But you will have to send me a private message, either on YouTube, I mean, um, on Facebook, maybe email um, your mailing information, so that I can send you these in the mail. Uh, But don't don't do it on YouTube, because otherwise, some slasher flick from one of the (laughs) from one of the uh, horror movies that Eric Ver Taylor may be thinking about may come after you. If you're, (laughs) Uh, but yeah, in a like email, Facebook private message, just uh, tell me where you want these to be sent to and you'll get them there. And uh, for those who, you know, maybe watching this on playback later, uh, these are all available on paperback and Kindle. You can get them on amazon.com. And once Cerebral Faith Live is over for the season, you know, this is a seasonal thing. I'm doing it like every summer from May-ish to September or October-ish. And like in the cooler months, I'm going to just be writing. You know, I'm going to have Cerebral Faith Live snippets. I'm going to have excerpts that I'm going to be posting. You know, and I've got a whole bunch of content that I can be made from just taking little snippets from this live web show. And the live web show is also going to be the audio for the audio podcast, the Cerebral Faith podcast, and of course it's the web show, so it's going to be, it's the hub for all non-written content. So in the cooler months, when I'm not making this uh, video and audio content, I'm going to be writing more, writing and researching, and so the next book I plan on writing is going to be about the primeval history. So there will be a fourth book out soon. It's going to be exegeting Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, there's going to be some overlap with the content I covered on the uh, live web show here last year. But there's also going to be a lot of stuff I didn't cover on the live web show. There's going to be stuff I haven't put out anywhere. I mean, well, I talked about a little bit of it on Zach Miller's channel uh, over on, on What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You, but it's not available on um, there's gonna be there's gonna be some stuff that you know I've already talked about and stuff I haven't talked about uh, online anywhere um, and I've come up with a really cool name for it um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna no you know what I think I will drop it I, it's called from God's temple to Nimrod's tower so be on the lookout for that I'm looking forward to writing it and I'm looking forward to you guys reading it Diego Severo Gonzalez says, "Congrats, Evan. God bless you. Thank you. So, thank you for watching Cerebral Faith live. And everybody, thank you for following Cerebral Faith. For uh, well, you know, whenever you started following. If you've been here since the beginning, well, it's been a it's been a good ten years. Um, if and if you're new to Cerebral Faith, um, and if you want to see more apologetics contents like the stuff I've been getting into tonight, uh, all of the blog articles I've been reading." They come. They come from this website down here: www.cerebralfaith.net, formerly known as www.cerebralfaith.blogspot.com. Um, and that website is pretty much a hub for all of my content. I all of you know the videos are embedded there from the YouTube channel. I got a whole bunch of blog articles on a variety of different con uh, uh, topics. The po- The audio podcast player is there, so you can listen to the audio podcast, Um, which there's like you know 120 episodes that are just audio exclusive because the there wasn't you know Cerebral Faith Live and the audio podcast were not always fused. So if you're listening to the audio podcast or you're watching this web show, there are some podcast episodes that you're not going to get on YouTube. Uh, So it would be worth going over there. If you'd like to support this ministry this ministry financially I've been talking too long my mouth is starting to malfunction uh, <laughs> go to www.patreon.com slash cerebral faith and finally I got to do the youtuber thing like the video and subscribe so it's been a good 10 years and I hope God gives me 10 20 30 40 50 more I'll be doing this for as long as I possibly can um, and I look forward to uh, the kind of content that I can put out in the future. Peace out, God bless, and keep using the brains that God gave you.